Welcome to Authorized, a podcast where we verdantly discuss the novelization of any film fortunate enough to have one. Novelizations are vivid, daring extrapolations, which breathe life into a fun, functional, if cursory film. They enliven a film story by weaving thorough, fleshed-out interiority into every single moment. In novelizations, no one simply picks up an item, or offers a rejoinder, or decides to walk across a room. When these actions occur, they are justified by the complex history underpinning the character's entire worldview, their dreams and aspirations and losses. Novelizations also cast aside the photography of a film. Though the movie may have been competently shot, its visuals are nothing to write home about. Working off of their own imagination, novelization authors imbibe the majesty and splendor of a film's sprawling landscapes and frenetic action. Recognizing that an alien invasion would seem to be magic to the cowboys of the 19th century, these authors also make their otherworldly villains vibrant, foreign, and terrifying. Novelizations are staggering achievements, swimming in intoxicating majesty, while drowning their readers in stark terror. There's no way around this. This book specifically absolutely ruled. Yeah. We are your hosts. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, man. When you get a good one, with all the fucking shit we we wade through on this podcast, when you get a good one, you sing it to the heavens. (laughs) It's a miracle. It's a miracle. (laughs) For this movie to have a novelization that kicks ass is truly more impressive than walking on water. (laughs) We are your hosts, a loose coalition of novelization enthusiasts. My name, for one is Andrew Overby. And I'm Hannah Blackman, and it's just us with a guest today. (laughs) It's a, you know, get used to this format. You might be seeing a lot more of it. (laughs) Turns out everyone's busy but us. Who knew? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Andrew and Hannah always have time to read a a 400-page novelization of a film everyone forgot. (laughs) We're crushing it. We're popular and cool. Other people are like, I have something going on this week. And I'm always like, I I do not. (laughs) (laughs) I'll do it. When do you want to do it? 11 a.m. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I feel the need to point out that um, you made us do it at 11 a.m. That's true. Because I have someone coming into town, so I'm about to be popular for three whole days. Yeah. And for people like you and me, we got to we gotta grab those when we get them. Yeah. So. You're, okay. Cowboys and aliens. <laughs> Not cowboys versus aliens. Cowboys and aliens. Who is, who is that in response to? Who um, thought it was versus? Both myself and our friend Marika and everybody I think I've ever spoken to was I, like I it's verse, right? Yet, but yeah, I broke three of our friends yesterday by saying it's cowboys and aliens. They're like, what do you mean it's and? It's verse. And our one friend refused be to verse. acknowledge that I was saying and and just kept saying verse every time <laughs> I was talking about this book. Now I'm mad that they're actually fighting. <laughs> I wish it was like I mean, cowboys and aliens hang out. To be fair, cowboys and one alien hang out. And then it should be cowboys and alien, singular, versus aliens, plural. Okay, we'll get to this, but I I do not think that the aliens in the title refers to the character who is sympathetic to our main character. No, of course not. That's one alien, (laughs) as Hannah was saying, so it's just alien. Okay, so it should be called cowboys and aliens. Alien yes. one because yes. for, for people who haven't seen this movie, there's one good alien. Cowboys and alien versus yes, aliens. That's what, right, that's what I said. Right, and and <laughs> is that the joke you just made? Yes, amazing. This and is so, one time where I will say maybe you should have been listening. <laughs> in the parlance, 
Yeah, sorry. I've I've face planted terribly. So in the parlance of the screenwriting teams, we need an ampersand for mm-hmm. the and, right? Yeah. Cowboys and alien because they, they themselves are a duo. Did you also <laughs> make that joke? Point. I didn't, so well done. Great. Um Great. Wait, wait till wait till the listener hears the list of people credited on the front of this book. I have been waiting since we decided to do this book, what, like five months ago, mm-hmm. for you to read the writing team on the front of this book. Hannah, I will, take and us I away. Will. Okay, so Cowboys and Aliens is a 2011 science fiction Western film directed by John Favreau based on the 2006 graphic novel, <coughs> novel, <laughs> graphic novel Cowboys and Aliens <laughs> by Scott Mitchell Rosenberg. It stars Daniel Craig, hot, as a mysterious brutish stranger who wanders into the depleted mining town of Absolution with a strange device affixed to his wrist. With no memory of who he is or what the device is, the man comes to discover that he is the wanted thief slash outlaw slash general cowboy, Jake Lonergan, and that he must pay for the legion of his sins he does not recall committing. And then here's a part where a cat walked across my keyboard. That's actually what happened. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going to read it, so thanks for sharing with the (laughs) listener. It was clear to me that it was not, that the was not meant to be read. (laughs) That was the cat being like, I have some thoughts. (laughs) I have some thoughts on this movie. I also read the book. I thought I was done. And then the cat was like, I do have a punch up. When extraterrestrials attack the town, Jake discovers that his nifty bracelet, and he along with it, also have a history with these alien aggressors. In the wake of many, many alien abductions, (laughs) correct, Jake must put aside the fact that he knows none of these people or even himself. Wait, (laughs) I need to read this sentence to myself so I know how to say it. (laughs) Oh, sure. Legion is the adjective for sins. I know that. I already read that. Oh, oh, okay. Sorry. Oh my god. So Rachel, Andrew writes the intro and then I basically read them cold because I can't be bothered. And every once in a while his grammatical syntax throws me for the the longest loop. Okay, here we go. Here we go. In the wake of many, many alien abductions, Jake must put aside the fact that he doesn't know any of these town people or even himself in order to lead and and enact revenge on the aliens and save the kidnapped abductees. Okay. The novelization of Cowboys Ampersand Aliens was written by Joan DeVinge, an absolute queen, based on the screenplay by Roberto Orchi, Ampersands, Alex Kurtzman, <laughs> Ampersand, Damon Lindelof, and Mark Fergus, Ampersand, Hawk Ostby. What a name. As well as a screen story by Mark Fergus, Ampersand, Hawk Ostby, and Steve Odekirk. <laughs> I, I said this to you Woo. recently, Hannah, but the fact that it ends with one new name cracks me up so much. <laughs> it's it's so like the many same names. three names just recycled over and over and over again, and then Steve Odekirk gets in right at the end. You know, they sat him down at brunch. It was like, what do you think of this? And he was like, I have a couple of notes. <laughs> what if and aliens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, speaking of Joan DeVinge, our new <laughs> patron saint. Of the authorized Hold that podcast. thought, Rachel. Hold it. It's about the ands and the ampersands. <laughs> oh, no. We can go Why into this. Why is what, it mixed what's up between ampersands and ands? I know it's so it could fit on the cover of the book and not look bad, but also it looks bad because it's just a hodgepodge of Hannah, words. take this. Yeah. Ampersands represent writing teams who work together, and ands link 
separate people who didn't work together. So there's like three separate writing okay, teams well, who worked on this. Okay, already a problem there. And also yeah. maybe just forego <laughs> that for the cover of this book and just be like, a lot of people wrote this. And then in the book, list it. A hundred percent. For the listener, this is a paragraph of text on yeah. the cover of this book. And it should just say, by Joan D. Vinge, because it oh, feels like almost our, divorced our from the movie covers. that these guys wrote. Oh, they're different. Oh. <gasps> Whoa. Well, this I bought on Amazon because I was like, I don't know where I, in hell I can find this book in time to read it. So I just was like, <laughs> okay, Amazon. And it was like, it'll take a week to get there, even with pride. I was like, okay. Our Hannah, our cover, which has him facing away, I agree is sort of the inferior of the two covers. Oh, one of the reasons is because it looks like a Walking Dead poster. Yeah. I hear that. Because he's got the cowboy hat on, and it's all dark and At emo. At least yours, though. Yeah, and also, like, sell your movie well, on say, Daniel Craig. Looks Come like a on. Cowboy. He looks like a frat bro in this. This looks like... <laughs> <laughs> looks like... Uh, like, you know the girls they make fun of? Uh, like, people make fun of because they're, like, the sorority girls who dress like Han Solo? That's what this looks like, but, like, <laughs> it doesn't work for this movie. <laughs> No, yours is much more alien heavy, <laughs> well, yeah, and ours is much more cowboy heavy. Well, yeah, I don't know if you can see that aliens is ten times larger than the cowboys on, on the cover. Yeah, right. And I mean, it is larger on ours as well for space reasons, but the similarity Oof. is that both books are the cover is one genre and then a weapon from the other genre. Yeah. So Rachel's copy is like this is a sci-fi movie. And then he's just holding like a pistol, like an old timey pistol. Whereas ours is like a cowboy with an alien gun on his wrist. I, you know what? I appreciate that. Cool. I'm happy for them that they said, "Yeah, who cares?" I think the gun yeah. pops a little more, like yeah. the alien gun, because like the 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 literal gun. Yeah. We're just so used to seeing those, right? I mean, this feels like the cover of Andrew and ours book feels like a teaser poster, you know, compared to where I feel like Rachel is like, well, the movie's out and it's not doing great. So let's try a new branding. Yes. What if it was more Daniel Craig heavy, well, more sci-fi heavy? Like, alien gun thing looks like the, uh, the thing they use in the MCU. I think Nat has it on hers where she like can shoot things out. Oh yeah. It looks mm-hmm. more like that than in the movie. Cause the thing in the movie yes, is wild, but like that looks like the MCU kind of fisticuff I thing. Oh, we're gonna talk about that weird thing in the movie where it has like a targeting <laughs> system not mentioned in the book whatsoever. Real surprise to me. <laughs> Hannah, this guest that you've brought us is on a first name basis with Black Widow. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. is. What about it? <laughs> All right, so Joan Vinge. My my hero. I mean, in love. Can Amazing. I date a seventy-four-year-old yeah. woman? <laughs> you could, yeah. Um, all right. Who is she? Here's the deal. Joan D. Vinge was born in Baltimore, Maryland, on April second, nineteen forty-eight. Vinge studied art as an undergraduate, but soon changed her major to anthropology, which, in my opinion, makes sense because she has an incredible grip on the human condition <laughs> and what makes individual people as well as cultures function as well as fall apart. Little editorializing on my part. (laughs) Vinge has gone on to excel in many aspects of creative writing, from short story to poetry to original novels to, of course, novelizations and other media tie-ins like picture books for movies. She has novelized Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Lady Hawk, which Hannah was advocating for heavily the other day. Big fan of Lady Hawk. 
Willow, which, how's that possible? Well, you might find out someday, listener. How's it possible that she wrote Willow, a book we covered that was definitely written by another person? She also wrote Lost in Space, among other novelizations. She is perhaps best known for her science fiction novel, The Snow Queen, whose plot synopsis includes, the imperious winter colonists have ruled the planet Tiamat for 150 years, deriving wealth from the slaughter of the sea murs. But soon the galactic Stargate, Stargate, will close, isolating Tiamat, and the 150-year reign of the summer primitives will begin. So, so much world building that seems required in that. So a Stargate is a literal Stargate? I mean, we have to assume it's a, it's a Stargate, as we all know and recognize from Roland Emmerich's 1994 classic. Well, prior to the film Stargate, uh, you know, an, an American classic, I agree. It, <laughs> the term Stargate would just pop up in sci-fi all the time because it was this, this kind of cut and paste, you know, gates are in sci-fi, like portals that take people places. And what's the sci-fi sounding thing? Stars. So there's like an old Star Trek episode where they're like trying to stop someone from opening the Stargate, like a next gen episode. It's like, oh, this must have been two years before Stargate or something. (laughs) I'm so glad that Roland Emmerich slash whoever wrote the movie Stargate was like, I'm going to make that proprietary. I'm going to change the meaning of that completely. That's mine now. uh, He did make the moon fall recently. So he's, he's out here doing whatever the hell he wants. He owns the moon now. Yeah, he owns the moon. The thing about Stargate, not super starry, very puddle. Very puddle, very gate. Very gate. But then you go through it and it's like whoosh, whoosh, and you're going past stars. It's taking you through the stars. We don't have to argue about Stargate. Hannah, you and I, I don't know if you were as active on the Stargate forums (laughs) as I was. Hannah and I met like a year and a half ago and have discovered we both love Stargate SG-1, but... There is a debate as to whether the the portal sequence when they go through and you, they're whizzing through space is experienced by the characters or whether it's just a representation for the audience. Hmm. I've never thought about it because it changes in SG one from one from one tor- type of graphic to another. Well, graphics got better. You know what I mean. <laughs> Sure, sure. But, um, I mean, I would say that it is experience because every once in a while, people step out of the Stargate and are like, oh my God, did you see that? Which right. makes me think they're seeing something, that it's not like totally instantaneous. Anyway, Joan. Anyway, here's the thing about Joan. The reason I wanted to read that plot synopsis is I feel like she was really well primed to do this very lore-heavy sci-fi book, Cowboys and Aliens. Here's the last thing I'll say about Joan. On March 2nd, 2002, she was severely injured in a car accident that left her with minor but debilitating brain damage. Oh, no. This brain damage left her unable to write. She recovered to the point of being able to resume writing around the beginning of 2007, and her first new book after the accident is the 2011 novelization of the movie Cowboys and Aliens. Which makes so much sense to me because this oh book God. is bursting with hope. It is this woman's return to vitality. And oh my, like she crushed it. She was like, I may never be able to write again. And then she came out of the gate and was like, here's an amazing book. You're welcome. I'm back. I love her. What a hero. Unbelievable. What we'll a journey. We'll get into it. But this is, this is like the her ability to imbue this thing with so much 
meaning and at the same time have it still recognizably be the same story and movie is staggering. Amazing. Speaking of expanding universes, expanding lore, we have a guest. How was that? <laughs> Pretty good. It's funny how as I've uh, continued to host a podcast, I've gotten so much better at it. Um, so our guest today, the assistant editor for the Mary Sue, the host of the podcast, Padro Pascal, a podcast about the actor and human being, Pedro Pascal, Rachel Leishman. I didn't ask you how to pronounce your last name, but I fucking knew it, was, it, right? It was close. <laughs> it's Leishman. Ah, you could have let me God say it because it. Rachel is my real life friend. Okay, let me try it again. Raquel Leishman. <laughs> Nailed. Um, we'll just splice together the ones I said right. So, yeah. Rachel, how are you doing today? Great. I read this book in the midst of chaos <laughs> in my life, and I was just like, this is my one saving grace currently. And I just kept reading Cowboys and Aliens. R- Rachel, about how much of this book did you house... Uh, during the apartment fire that you told us about before we started um, recording? I would say, like, probably 100 pages in the midst of it because there was, like, me and uh, our friend. Uh, I was like, me and Hannah are part of, like, a group of, like, best friends. There's, like, five of us. And so our one mm-hmm. I live with, uh, her name is Leah. She's been on the podcast. I, I'm, I think I'm she losing. was on our Friend podcast of the pod, Leah, last week. Um, yes. Is uh, my roommate. And so we had no internet. So we played a Haunted Mansion board game for like an hour. Because we were Fine. like, what else can we do? And so then as we were taking shifts to kind of go outside, since we had no front door, I uh, sat on the couch and read Cowboys and Aliens. And 100 pages of this book, yeah. just so the listener knows. This is a 400-page book. I mean, Hannah, safe to say that we yeah. approached this book with some trepidation and dread. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had heard that the movie was so bad that despite the many appeals in 2011, I did not see it. So I assumed that the novelization would not be great. And also it's 400 pages long, which is never a great <laughs> sign. And it's the. I was saying this to you the other day, Hannah. The pages turn slowly. They are dense pages. They are not like dialogue heavy for the most part. You're, I am not sitting down whizzing through 20 pages of Cowboys and Aliens. All of that to say, 100 pages, Rachel, that's probably a chunk of time. Yeah, it is. And like, it, it is funny because as I was watching this movie, uh, I know we'll talk about it later, but I, at one point I went, that is like 100 pages of this yes. movie. Yes. Oh. And it was within five minutes. Yeah. We, and I was just like, This reminded me so much of when we read Star Wars Revenge of the Sith, (laughs) in which the beginning space battle is like 120 pages, and then you watch the movie, and they're like, pew, 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 we're to the dialogue now. It's like, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) I read that book as a teenager, because Hannah knows that is one of my favorite Star Wars movies. I I I read that as a teenager and was like, I don't even care that this is so long for no reason. (laughs) It's good. It's worth it, you know? Same thing with Cowboys and Aliens. Is it long? Yes. Is it dense? Yes. Is it worth it? Yeah. A hundred (laughs) percent. Rachel, when I came to you with a list of novelizations, Uh um, I remember, or maybe I heard this through Hannah, that you wanted to do something with Harrison Ford in it. Well, yes. So 
my Pedro Pascal podcast is not the first time I've like gone through the filmography of an actor because I wanted to go through it and made a podcast about it. Because mm-hmm. I also had one called The Ford Cast, a Harrison Ford podcast, mm-hmm. where we went through all of his movies. And Cowboys and Aliens was one of the ones that like at at that point when we were doing it, like I couldn't do that episode, so I just had never seen the movie. Oh. Was like I want to watch it, and I I saw it, and I was like, oh, it'd make more sense if I did a Harrison Ford one. And this one has Hannah's boy and my boy in it. So I was like, why not? Yes, my boy, Walton Goggins. Yeah, Walton Goggins. <laughs> not Daniel Craig. Walton. There are so many my boys in this movie. <laughs> it's a great cast. I did not look up the cast of the movie before reading the book, and I had everyone wrong. Um, <laughs> Same. I was I mean, absolutely convinced. I did convinced. look up the cast, and I still got everyone wrong. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to put this thought off. Rachel. Having hosted a Harrison Ford podcast, yeah. Aside from the obvious Star Wars and Indiana Jones, mm-hmm. what's like a standout, and where does Cowboys and Aliens fall as far as Ford performances go? Um. Well, I'm putting Blade Runner with your other. Yes, ones, that makes sense. Blade Runner is like the other one. Um. I would say like movies working girl is the one that kind of changed everything Mm -hmm. for me because it was the first time i ever seen it he's very funny and charming in it in a way that like is different from indiana jones and han solo Mm -hmm. because i'm team han solo is bad at flirting um (laughs) and is a hermit and isn't a ladies man despite what most uh straight white dudes believe they wrong uh yeah they're very wrong um and so watching working girl where he is like kind of suave and like flirting with girls. I was like, oh, this is way funner. I love he this. He actually has um, it. He actually yeah, has the like, swagger. Yeah, I was like, this is fun. And so that is very high. Cowboys and Aliens. Uh, I would put with movies like, uh, okay, this is about to sound bad because it is a genuinely like beloved and good movie. Uh-huh. But I'm ranking it exclusively for Harrison Ford in it. It is like with the conversation because Harrison Ford <laughs> is barely in that movie. <laughs> and I had to sit through the whole thing and I was like, this is a good movie, but wh- wh- how, what am I going to talk about for an hour? Okay, <laughs> over Harrison spoilers Ford from a movie for, like for a movie from 1974, but Harrison Ford is barely in that movie, but he does turn out to be the villain of the film. <laughs> so it's barely like, he's not, he's not incidental to the conversation. No, it's like barely in that movie. And then also the movie that he's in with uh, Candace Bergen and Elliot Gould that I cannot remember the name of where he's a neighbor and just like opens a door and says a line and then shuts the door and then you never see him again. Also a movie I had to watch and then come up with (laughs) shit to talk about for an hour. I mean, if I may say, and Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong here, 2011 is in like that weird dead period for Harrison Ford where he's in movies. The widely referred to dead years. Yeah, the widely referred to. Um, (laughs) Where he's he's in movies, but he's not trying at all. He's showing up, yeah, but like the performances are bad. <laughs> it's the yeah, because it's like the era around like Morning Glory and stuff like that. Um, post the Indiana Jones movie, no one wants to talk. Oh, we about already did. Ever. Don't worry about it. We covered it. <laughs> yeah, and like, I think it's good. Perfectly He's fine like, movie, pretty good yeah. novelization. Well, it you know what we'll say. It did kick off his. I'm a real life cowboy dealing with aliens era of his career <laughs> um, because didn't deal with aliens on earth prior to <laughs> that movie and then here we are 
But yeah, uh, it is that weird dead period where he was just kind of taking, I think he was just taking jobs to be like, this is fun. Um, and then I, then he went to like, oh, well, maybe I shouldn't do that because now all these movies are bad and people think I'm a bad actor. I, I think his casting in Cowboys and Aliens is kind of inspired and he does a really bad job with the part. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I was reading the book, so there's these two characters, for those of you not familiar with Cowboys and Aliens, that I thought could be the Ford characters. The one is like the the um, the preacher that is sort of, it takes Daniel Craig in when he shows up at the beginning of the movie and it's like, I don't know who I am. And um, the other one is the uh, Dolerhide Senior, the father of the the very rambunctious Paul Dano, it turns out, um, <laughs> who uh, basically his arc is like, I'm very racist and I have a bunch of war PTSD and I'm going to still have PTSD at the end, but amend some of my racism. And I thought, obviously, with the sleepy performances that Harrison Ford is giving at this point in his career, he's going to be the preacher, just sort of standing there like being like, you have to believe in yourself, kid, or whatever. And I and I said to Hannah, I was like, if he turns out to be Dolerhide Senior, that's who he should be. He should play somebody with some menace. He should like really. I mean, this is an opportunity for range. And here's the thing: he is who I hoped he would be, and he ain't bringing it. If if this was top tier Harrison Ford doing a top tier Harrison Ford performance of what's happening in the book, I think he would be good but he is not doing those things. And the script of the movie is not as rich as the book. So he really, like, there's dialogue he has to perform that is interior dialogue, like, interiority in the book. That's like, I lost 300 men at Antietam and I'm fucked up because of it. And I'm like, I'm so sorry you have to say those words out loud. Like, there's no way to make that sound normal or believable or organic to this character. No, and he definitely is like, he was sci-fi Harrison Ford when he needed to be like witness Harrison Ford mm-hmm. and taking it too seriously right, and like right. getting really into it and he didn't. Also the guy playing the preacher is Clancy Brown who would be amazing <laughs> as Dollarhide Senior, a sensitive well, looming presence. presence. But I also thought he was going to I thought he after like the I was watching or reading a book and when the preacher uh like I was like okay well if he's not the preacher he's for sure uh, the sheriff, he's Taggart. <laughs> and then, like, when Taggart gets taken, I was like, okay, wait, so he's not Taggart. It does feel like the kind <laughs> of like... move where you want Harrison Ford in one of the early roles who then gets snatched up or dies to, like, hand off the action hero baton to Daniel Craig. But no, they just share the whole movie. I uh, Ultimately, I think we should go through this chronologically because it's so plotty. But yeah. since it's already been brought up, uh, one of the best things about this book is that Joan gives interiority to every single character. Every single character gets one page somewhere in the book about what their whole deal is. And I, I want to read the the dollar hide one, the Harrison Ford <laughs> character. So <clears throat> uh, when someone suggests like halfway through this book, like, hey, we're fighting aliens. Do you want to bring the army in? He goes, we're not turning this over to some West Pointer. He said, his voice as bitter as alkali, wait for him to get on the telegraph and ask Washington which hand to wipe with. I waited around for him at Antietam. Antietam? Antietam. Antietam. What's wrong with you? I'm going to take it again. I'm too embarrassed about that. 
I waited around for him at Antietam to tell me what to do. He looked into the darkness that lay inside the flames, seeing the past that would never die, not like his men had died. They died and died, in meaningless sacrifice, in the bloodiest attack, on the bloodiest day of the bloodiest battle, in all the history of the United States. They'd keep on dying forever in his memory. Lost 428 men over a goddamn cornfield. He stared at the fire. It had been nearly 13 years, but nothing, no amount of time, would ever burn away the memory of that terrible day, deafen him to the screams of the dying, ease the agony of the wounded, or the agony in his own soul, as his grief and self-loathing forced him to live through it again and again. It's his whole deal. He was a company man. And then the movie said, forget that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't think that Harrison is embodying a lot of that pain or grief or guilt. Harrison's like, what if this guy was tired? (laughs) (laughs) Um, all, All of us read the book first, right? Yes. Yeah. I wonder... I had, like, a couple pages to finish after, but I read the majority of it before I watched it. I was in the exact same boat. I I, I wonder if... Did I even finish the book? I have a page (laughs) left. So, (laughs) I wonder if um, the movie is... Makes any sense if you haven't read the book. Oh, I know for a fact it doesn't, (laughs) because I watched it with our two friends, and my text messages kept being like oh well in the book and like finally leah goes you sound like a weird like uh hipster about it but it's just because you were reading the book and you know what's going on where neither of them were they're like i don't know what because it's not established that he doesn't remember anything in the movie not clear no not at all so that's that's a good starting point actually so at the beginning of this book and movie Jake Lonergan, who we don't know who he is yet, just is in the desert with an alien gun bracelet. And he's Mm -hmm. just like, I don't know who I am. You don't know who I am, the audience. And I'm just wandering the fuck around. He's like got a wound and no shoes. It's compellingly written. It's like, oh, I wonder where this guy was. What's going on? And like, Joan's like in his head, but is, you know, as they say, head empty. You know, it's like... (laughs) And in the movie, it's like, how do you even convey that? How do you convey that a character doesn't know who he is unless he's just yelling, who am I at at the heavens? What's crazy about this is that, like, I think the right performance could convey that he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. And I think Daniel Craig could do it. Like, I think he is the one person in this movie who is correctly cast. Yes. But he is not directed properly. Like, he should be doing funny Daniel Craig faces for the first 45 minutes of the movie where he's just like, what? Huh? Uh?" Like, he should constantly be questioning and we should see it on his face. And instead, they're like, be tough, be cool, be James Bond, which is not what you need from that guy at that time in the movie. I think he's got a couple good moments. there's There's a moment where he looks at the alien bracelet and he just gives a really good what the fuck look to himself, like with no one around. And I was like, okay, that conveys that he at least doesn't know what it is. <laughs> I also, this is Daniel Craig, very skinny, very slim and mm-hmm. trim. Um, I, I would love to hear like John Favreau's thoughts on like casting Daniel Craig, directing him that way, styling him that way. I just have questions. Did Favreau, and I'm going to look it up right now, did he direct anything between Iron Man and Cowboys and Aliens? I think Iron Man 2. Iron Man 2, yeah. Oh, because it came out so quickly. It was 2010, right? Iron Man 2 was 2010, yeah, because then 
Avengers was 2012, sorry. I think. Or 2011, something, something like that. Like that. I think when I went to see Iron Man 2, my friends were passing around... Like where I was in college, and my friends were like passing around orange soda in the theater that had alcohol in it, and then we realized after like twenty minutes that no one had put alcohol in it. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, we were Great. just enjoying having a real uh, Keenan and Kel time at the movies. <laughs> um, okay, but yeah, so the beginning of this book, not since Gremlins have I been so excited. Just reading the first page of a novelization. Let me see. I don't want to read too much of this. Let me see. Just read like the first paragraph. because The first paragraph strong. is amazing. Here we go. Spring had come and gone in the desert lands of New Mexico territory with all the subtlety of an iron fist and a green velvet glove. For a, for a few weeks, rain fell, usually fretful, with frequent rainbows, and the land that had been bleached of color put on a cloak of verdant grass... That's my favorite part. In a, good <laughs> in a good year, even a show of wildflowers. It was a thing of beauty for weary human eyes to behold. I've never Amazing. felt so excited as when I opened up the novelization of Cowboys and Aliens and the first paragraph had in a field of, or in a cloak of verdant grass. I will say, uh, what excited me was the strange, and I still don't understand why they're there, lyric choices oh yes oh man in, in the beginning rachel would you like to read some of those so these <laughs> sure, are like sure, the sure. at the what epigraph which one's the one for dead um, people? epitaph ep uh, <laughs> i think okay cool i don't know it is it's it's before like it's you have a trademarked cowboys and aliens first page and then it's this lyric page before it goes into the first chapter sure and it and it says he wants a fireball now he's got one Gunpowder and Lead by Miranda Lambert. Um, <laughs> all the lonely, all the lonely people. Where do they come from? Eleanor Rigby by Lennon and McCartney. You, they didn't need first names. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> the universe is made of stories, not atoms. Mural, Russ. Rooksire. What? Who is that? Rooksire. I don't know. I don't know. That one I need context for, and they said no context. <laughs> the other two, I'm like, I could figure out their songs, but you know, yeah, really bizarre. <laughs> Why put that one about the lonely people? Because it's like, what's the book trying to tell me that all the lonely people were abducted and forgot who they were? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> also, like, if the lonely people is Jake, we end up knowing where he comes from. We learn about him. <laughs> But he's, I guess he's lonely still because everyone he, is he knew lonely. is dead. He should hook back up with Walton uh, Goggins. I don't know why he has to ride off on his own. <laughs> okay, mister. Uh, Muriel Rukeser was a poet, playwright, biographer, children's book author, and political activist. Okay. Hmm. Okay, so where did this one come from? Uh, <laughs> the yeah. It's just something I hope it's a she said to somebody one time. <laughs> so, and they were like, "I gotta write that down." That was good. So, speaking of the memory wipe, uh, yeah. I do like that they never <laughs> fully get their memories back. <laughs> like Daniel Craig does at one point in this movie get some memories back by taking like a potion, but even so, he's still kind of wandering around the world, being like, "I know a couple things about me." And when they do rescue the other abductees at the end of the movie, they're all like. Who the fuck am I? <laughs> yeah. The best one is like some of them like like Doc's wife is like, oh yeah, 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 I know you. And like Sheriff Taggart is like, oh, right, right, my grandson. And Paul Dano is like, 
nothing literally zero <laughs> uh, i'm a whole new person now because finally my dad raised me yeah I get, well okay here is my question about that and i know we we're going through it but it's in my head now yeah we can so, jump around for sure yeah. okay so uh taggart keith carradine uh, at the end of this movie keith carradine goes I can't remember if it was in the book or not, but in the movie, he says to him, like, oh, yeah, like, Jake got killed in the thing. Like, go live your life or whatever. But why does he remember him? Like, why is that? Like, why does he recall hunting him where it should have just been, like, why is your face on the thing? I don't oh, really yeah. know who you are. <laughs> and then Harrison Ford could have been, like, oh, it, it, that was all, that was my fault and, like, lied for him. But instead... So, Keith Carradine's like, you know what? I don't remember my grandkid, but I do remember <laughs> that you're not good. For the, for the listener, the, the way they get like a little cute moment at the end to let Daniel Craig off the hook for being uh, a criminal. A notorious Keith outlaw. Keith, I feel like this happens in a lot of movies where Keith Carradine is basically like, we had our little adventure together and it bonded us. So I forgive you. You could say you're absolved. Like, is that his whole deal in Dexter? It's like, but in but in this fine. case, Rachel's completely right. Like, he should just be like, "You're absolved because I don't know what you did or why we would hunt you, <laughs> because my memory has been wiped." I think we simply must argue that the people who get snatched from absolution and rescued two days later had less memory wiping happening than Daniel Craig, who we have to assume was being held for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it's not great. It's not perfect. What if I were to suggest something even crazier than going through the movie chronologically, which is to say, let's talk about his abduction, which is chronologically first. Sure. So Jake Lonergan robbed Dollarhide, the, yes. the Harrison Ford character, robbed a stagecoach, mm-hmm. got a fuckload of gold. Does he have a relationship like a romantic relationship with the sex worker that he intends to run off with. Yes. He does. Yes. Yeah. Because there's some line in at the end of the book where he's like, I didn't have a lot of time to spend with her or whatever. But Yeah, they were like dating, whatever. Uh-huh. They have their little I cabin think he together. Loved he loved her. Maybe he didn't say it enough, you know? Right. I oh, I realize this is a podcast and I did in quotations. He loved her, but then realized like with Ella, what love was. There's some serious fugitive and- stuff going on, speaking of Harford, which is like <laughs> the the original draft of The Fugitive where they're like, yeah, okay, he he's mad about his wife dying, but he is going to fuck Julianne Moore halfway through this movie. <laughs> and then wisely, somebody was like, no, no. <laughs> he's mad about his wife being murdered. And it results in that hilarious thing where you, you start The Fugitive and it's like Harrison Ford. Tommy Lee Jones, Julianne Moore. And you're like, oh, Julianne Moore. And then she's like in a scene being like, yeah, the restroom's that way. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, Jake fully like loses the love of his life. And then a day later is kissing an alien woman. Well, he doesn't remember the love of his life. It's not good. I I mean, it's no, by the time he kisses, by the time he kisses her, he does know because they went through a potion thing. You're right. Or the, oh, the medical man came and like Oh, Jake. It. Hannah, I'm actually okay with the fact that he kisses her because of memory loss, because like he's going through a lot. The part that I don't like I'm fine that he is the her. end of the novel when when they're trying to reconcile it, and there's a chapter where he's like, 
I loved the person I loved. I also loved the alien. Both of these are fine. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things about this novel that I love that is not in the movie at all is that all of these people throughout the majority of this book are like, those are demons. We're fighting demons. And then I think in like, on page like 250, someone is finally like, oh, wait, shit, they're aliens. But like the whole book, they're just like, these are demons from hell. I think the first You're time the, the word alien is in the book is like literally page 200. And it's because we're in <laughs> Ella's perspective and she knows they're aliens. Then right. there's another hundred pages before anybody else is like, so they're aliens? Aliens? <laughs> you sure? They look like grasshopper demons. Which, like, I guess I get it because Daniel Craig, like, he is the only one who has seen the aliens and come back, but he doesn't remember it. But it's still, like, he. it's funny. He just, like, turns into a caveman in that beginning moment when he's, like, rock to arm <laughs> and, like, smacking the thing up. And it's just, like, this whole movie... <laughs> was like sitting there like how did anyone understand what was going on if they hadn't read this book because it doesn't make any and sense the book without did not exist the when the script was written no. so. <laughs> well it is a it is a novelization based on a movie based on a graphic novel which i think is funny our favorite I thing mean, to do we yeah. call it screen to page to screen we've hit maybe five or six of them um <laughs> Yeah, so the one thing I really love about the plot of this movie is the reason, ultimately, that Jake and Alice, his love, were abducted is because the aliens are after gold, which I think is cool. It's, I mean, it's, it's unusual as a motivation for an alien invasion. Is they're like, we also love gold. What are we going to do with it? Buy something. Yeah, it, the thing that I like about it is, like, at this point in society our point 2022 gold is valuable as like a social construct it's valuable because we've assigned value to it and because there's relative rarity right originally though like the reason that the gold standard became a thing i think is because it does have some chemical properties that are valuable like the fact that it's super malleable, the fact that it conducts electricity extremely well, and then you mix that in with like rarity and it and becomes- And it's shiny. And it's shiny, it's beautiful. So I, I, the book doesn't go into this, the movie doesn't go into this, but I actually buy alien invasion for a specific resource, like hook, line, and sinker. And there's moments where the book tries to be like, Ah, the aliens, they have greed just like us, which is true, but it's so much more believable to me that they want something that actually has, like, can be a means to an ends, as opposed to, like, these guys love money. And I'll I'll stop talking in just a second, but the abduction in the first, or uh, the first abduction of Jake Lonergan and Alice is cool in the sense that, like, they maybe got abducted not on purpose. It seems like the the aliens were like honing in on gold wherever they could find it. And since Jake had just robbed this stagecoach, he had a ton of it and they just got snatched up in what the movie portrays as like a true like beaming up of gold. Yeah, the the way the gold like melts and gets sucked up is very cool. 
Um, and then we are told that the aliens are also like investigating human beings to learn how to kill us better. Right. Um, so that they can get rid of us and then strip our world of all of its gold and then leave. Um, so, yeah, they were like, ooh, gold. Oh, people. We'll take them, too. Does it make sense that they want to kill us when there's also that line about how they think we're insects and that we're, we don't pose a threat? No. It doesn't make <laughs> sense at all because they have the technology to just simply take all of the gold and leave everyone alone, and it would just be a bunch of cowboys being like, well, what about the gold? And, like, it would have been fine, but instead they're like, what if we murdered some people, then made everyone mad that we murdered those right. people, but still wanted the gold? And so it was like they added a level <laughs> to their invasion that didn't need to exist. Right. I kind of appreciate that the aliens are just straight-up evil, greedy, rude. Like, they look like bugs. With their hands that go they like this. Yeah, they have disgusting They're... little secondary hands. They're just like foul beasts who have no language Ooh. that we understand. They're just gnarly. And then the only other alien is a beautiful human woman. <laughs> that, like, this movie has a very clear delineation of, like, human beings good, bug aliens bad. No nuance to that at at all. Only other alien can turn into a human, so... She's, she's fine. Good. She looks like a human woman. <laughs> we don't know anything about her true form, though. No. Nope. And also, it's weird because the movie, she heroically dies at the end, but the movie also shows her die and resurrect in the middle. And so I had a little trouble well, she blows buying up into at the her. End, you know? Yeah. I do... So, like, the end of... I guess we shouldn't talk about the last paragraph in the book right now. <laughs> No, go for it. We'll still do chronological, but so hit it. So speaking of, so she, the the nice alien lady who has died and been resurrected midway through the movie, then blows up the alien ship in a noble sacrifice, and we assume she's dead forever. Then the end of the book, which is not in the movie, thank God, I want to say, <laughs> maybe the one improvement the movie makes says a woman's figure silhouetted by the sky stood gazing down into the canyon mm -hmm. from a cliff high above blah 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 she watched jake as jake rode away she stood without moving still looking after him until jake was long gone from her sight jake hadn't seen her but she was sure that he never would again but if he had he would have seen her smiling and the implication is that this is the alien woman ella and she has somehow survived this unbelievable explosion and she's okay which i don't think makes a lot of sense I think the only way that you can bring her back in a sequel, because I think it's doable since she says that she like jumps from body to body or whatever she's doing. I think the only way to do it is have her be like, oh, yeah, in that explosion, I became pure energy again, which is what I am. And I have gone into this completely different thing or person. Like, I think you have to recast the part to make that make sense because her body was blown apart. That's the part uh, that we must think. Yeah. 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 Um, so Harry Styles is in the sequel. <laughs> as Wait, speaking Ella. of Stargate, just a little Stargate yeah. uh, tangent. Do you remember that plot in Stargate where S Samantha Carter fell in love with an alien man who had like powers of possession? And then they it was it was one of the Boondock Saints, and they couldn't get him back in like a future <laughs> season, and they recast him as a child. Oh, yeah, this is coming back to me now. And he shows up as a kid. And, of course, she doesn't fuck the kid. Like, they weren't... The Sci-Fi <laughs> Channel wasn't going to do that. But it is... They do introduce that tension of her being like, I did used to smash this kid. 
but now he's a kid. <laughs> that's like Whew. that's like that movie Womb with Eva Green and Matt Smith where her boyfriend dies and so she has his clone as a baby and raises the baby and then as he gets older still looks like Matt Smith. So her son slash lover is That's crazy. Uh, an adult man. Upsetting. Now? Very yeah, upsetting. Yeah, very upsetting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hate that. Um, Don't like it. There's another thing since we're in the final chapter. <laughs> there's another thing in the final Last chapter. episode, huh? I'm not thrilled about. So it, it it's uh, just Jake sort of thinking over all of the philosophical implications of what's happened. And he goes, uh, it made him wish, whatever makes him wish, I don't know, just for a moment, that humans could see into each other's minds and hearts the way she'd done with him, with everyone around her. But what would that change about humans? They'd just use it all wrong, like they got everything else wrong. He thought about Dollarhide and Taggart, back in absolution. Remembered how Ella had made him believe there might be something better in everyone. But he didn't envy those two, or the town, or the last of the free Apaches, once gold fever really took a hold of this place. What the hell was wrong with human beings? (laughs) Had they even deserved Ella's sacrifice? In their hearts, they wanted to be like angels. But one wrong move... And demon was and demon was too good a word for what a man could become, but Ella had believed in him. And then he goes on, but it's like, what isn't the what whole did you learn from this, this experience? Right, and there there's so many instances towards the end of the story of people being like, in the end, we all had to work together despite our differences to defeat the aliens. And then uh, Jake in the final pages is like, but fuck humanity. Exception that proves the rule, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I agree. So many of the character arcs are about like stepping up to take care of other people, to like be more generous of spirit. Like Dollarhead, obviously, that's his entire arc is being like a loving person instead of a hateful person. Right. Even Doc has to like learn how to be brave f- for the sake of mm-hmm. others. Like that's the whole point. Even Emmett, the kid, is like, I too have to be brave to help other people instead of just being <laughs> a baby child. Like right, right. Damn, Jake. Yeah, I agree. That's that's a bummer that he it's, walks it's out of like the story the, being like, not worth it. You made it. <laughs> it's like the only thing I don't like in the entire novelization. Mm-hmm. I will say, I think it, the novelization is, if, I guess the movie also does it, but also I like half the time just tuned out because I was like, I don't know what is happening. And I read the book. <laughs> um, but like the novelization really does love to be like, hey, this man, Nat, who is an Apache, is gung-ho about this white racist man and he's like don't be mean he's a good man and i was just like huh okay this is very 2011 and then like and then like something else or like i think black knife like nodded at dollar high at one point i was like oh my god they solved racism with the aliens (laughs) and they came together as human beings versus bugs Turns out yeah. that there's one line where Dollarhide is like, his conception of the word monster had changed, and it no longer includes the Apaches. It's only it's the like, bug oh, monsters, so- the genuine monsters. Okay. Yeah, good, it's correct. It's like, cool, yes. man. So cool that you evolved. I mean, I do think, like, in the, in the movie, when Nat, who I love, is dying, he's like, I always, you know, basically, like, you were a dad to me, and I love you. And that feels so out of the blue in the movie. And in the yes. book, you're like, yes, of course, this is the moment to have like an emotional, like you were a son to me and I loved you. And mm-hmm. that feels like earned in a way that the movie just like bloop, drops in. Well, yeah, because in the movie, I mean, it happens in the book, but there's at least like 
you see Dollaride's journey a little bit more. And you spend more time with Nat, where you're like, get you get so much backstory from him earlier in the... Nat Colorado, the basically, like, the enforcer of um, Dollarhide. It, he, he's, like, the standout <laughs> character in the book, almost. I think this so. This man mm-hmm. that's, like, torn between his two identities. Is he... Is he essentially uh, first of all he is half apache is that correct Mm -hmm. but he's also sort of half Mm -hmm. apache in the sense that he's sort of like half white culture because he's like the the right hand of dollar hide um and there's a lot of trepidation about like what are my allegiances and blah, blah blah all that stuff in the movie it's just like he's around then he dies and dollar hide's like I have learned you You too are my son, and I love you. And it's like, where the fuck did this come from? He yelled at him like 20 minutes before he died where he was like, those those were for my son, those stories. Yeah. You shouldn't have listened to him. Like that moment is in the book as well, but it's so much softer, and you really feel like this is a lashing out moment. It's not that mm-hmm. he genuinely sucks. And in the book, the movie, you're like, no, Dollarhide just genuinely sucks. He's just a bad guy who has no appreciation for what Nat is doing for him, period. Let's uh let's discuss the the when Jake gets into town everything that tra- that trans <laughs> circling back right <laughs> yeah circling yeah. back well I just think it's a good it's a good sequence I I think one of the interesting things that I love about the book is that it sets up really interesting dynamics before the aliens arrive that I'm actually invested in and it mm-hmm. doesn't feel like because I've seen the title Cowboys and Aliens doesn't feel like I'm just waiting for the aliens to show up. Yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, so basically, it, uh, Jake gets to town. Uh, he's, he was attacked by somebody in the desert, and he beat him up, in, so we know he's He kills them. He kills those people. He beats, the movie, that's, that's a form of beating up. A minute. In, a, in the movie, a minute long. In the book, 14 pages long of him waking up, figuring out the... Like, it's fascinating to me. I was like, this whole sequence took so long in the book. In the book, he kills those guys and then is like, holy shit, I didn't want to do that. I don't want to be a person Mm -hmm. who kills. Who am I? This is a horrifying muscle reaction. Right. Uh, And in the movie, he's just like, cool, tough, steals that guy's horse and dog and clothes and gun (laughs) and just like saunters off. It just feels so different. The dog didn't seem as important in the movie. And I was mad about it. I was like, that dog, he thinks about that dog so much. (laughs) It feels like Joan Vinge knew all of these people in real life. And she's like, (laughs) I know that this is true, that this is how they are. So I'm going to write a book that shows how they're all still like beautiful people with righteous <laughs> motivations. Like it just seems like she has uh, this unbridled generosity for all these characters mm-hmm. that the movie just doesn't at all explore. Yeah. I mean, if she was given nope. just a screenplay, I have no idea how she wrote this book so richly and how much it feels right. I mean, like watching the movie, I was like, I guess that's what's happening in the interiority remembering the book. It's not super presented, but like she just like out of the blue wrote something that's so good and rich yeah. and that's a miracle god bless her so jake gets to town yes he is uh, sewn up by preacher meacham i think mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. who also th- gives him some like nice life lessons while he's on the table yes yeah i mean every page of this book at, at some point during this episode i'll just turn to a random page and it'll be some beautiful prose <laughs> Every page is just, like, is so involved and so insightful. Um, but 
He gets sewn up, and then there's this drama that is legitimately pretty compelling, which is that there is this guy, Percy Dollarhide, who's just a menace to society. He's just <laughs> yes. shooting his gun in the middle of the street, and um, it's Paul Dano, which I One never thing the book is guessed. No, never. One thing the book is missing, <laughs> though, is a description of Paul Dano's very wispy sideburns and mustache. An amazing yes. choice. Yes. I, I like truly first of all thought that like the preacher's house was not in the middle of town for some reason like when i was reading the book i was like he lives off in like this little forest area and then i watched the movie i was like oh he's literally in the middle of town and then like uh because i was really bad at casting everyone in my head that i knew was in this movie i assumed sam rockwell was either dollar hide or percy i was like he's one of those two that's a sam rockwell vibe Two insane roles so, to put the same Sam Rockwell in in your mind, <laughs> father and but son. Was like, that was cool because I was like, I don't know, it's the old west, so like he could have a kid that's like eighteen, sure, and it would make sense. But instead, uh, it was Paul Dano. I think Paul Dano's giving uh, a good performance. I like that he is yeah, taller I, than everyone else in town, which feels insane. There's a scene where he is standing next to Daniel Craig, and he is three inches taller than him, at least. It's wild. I wanted more <laughs> Dano in the movie. I thought he was really, really compelling in his small his small uh, little bits. So the, the funniest thing in the movie happens, I think, which is uh, the Jake goes to confront Percy Dollarhide, Basically just punches him, like just takes him out, no problem. <laughs> Dollarhide is mad about this because he's he's a big swinging dick. And he he pulls his gun out to fire a warning shot. In the book, I'm like, okay, he fires a warning shot in Daniel Craig's direction. And something Misses. horrible happens. In the movie, Paul Dana pulls this gun out. Fires a warning shot like way far away from him, which makes sense if you don't really want to hit him, but just directly shoots a man. Like, <laughs> I thought this man was between Paul Dano and Daniel Craig. It is like in the movie, it's like Paul Dano goes out of his way to spin around and be like, I'm shooting that guy. And then <laughs> right after it happens, he has the funniest line delivery of, Where did he come from? <laughs> yeah. Like, Paul Dano is. Paul Dano's bringing a lot to that character. <laughs> it is so delightful. He's so funny. And his, like, baby round face just being like, I didn't mean to do it. It was an accident. Yes. So yes. funny. <sighs> I do wish Dano was in more of the movie. Because people, like, discover that Lonergan is is uh, a thief, a wanted thief. And uh, this is one of the things I love about this book is it just sets up a bunch of dominoes that in retrospect seem obvious but are very satisfying to watch fall where they're like, this guy's a thief. It turns out. Wow. How interesting. He doesn't remember anything. And the guy he robbed is in town. It's just like a, yeah. a bunch of little stuff that ratchets the tension. Mm -hmm. I truly thought like the way that no one knew who he was in the beginning, I, except for uh Taggart, I was like, okay, so clearly like he had robbed some other town. Um, and like the sheriffs all were in cahoots Right. And, like, that's how he knew. But, no, <laughs> he is, like, the people in this town knew him, but suddenly forgot what his face looked like. I was just, like, <laughs> what? I'm confused as, to, like, I would understand if Dollarhide, like, came into town because he was searching for him. But, no, he clearly lives there. They all knew Percy. 
And like, so it's just like, why wouldn't you have just? I don't think certainly he's from it there. must be that the town dislikes Dollar Hyde, mm-hmm. who lives on a ranch outside of town, and Percy comes into yeah. town to get smashed. Um, and Lonergan comes into town once in a while, probably, and everyone's like, it's not our business. Yeah. we don't care. Yeah, because no, Lonergan is from there because his cabin is nearby. Is not that far yeah. away. And his gang <laughs> so is he, like nearby. walked into the cabin. <laughs> There are, like, dynamic shifts on every single page of this book. Mm-hmm. We go from, like, the you know, Percy Dollarhide is a stranger to Jake, to they are fighting, to it turns out Percy Dollarhide's dad is some important veteran who with, like, his own personal army, to that guy's dad is the guy Jake Lonergan robbed, which then leads to, okay, before the aliens show up, I want to watch this movie where the aliens don't show up. Give me the movie Cowboys. I'm yeah. ready. I mean, so much of like when Dollarhead shows up and is like, Lonergan, where's my gold? And Jake's right. like, ah, uh, gold? <laughs> Never heard of gold, but he's playing it cool. It's like a very tense, interesting dynamic. He shows up like to, to get his son out of trouble uh, because his son has shot a deputy, which he's in big trouble for. And when he realizes that the other prisoner is the guy who robbed him, he's like, my son is not important to me anymore. <laughs> I need the money. Um, just like, yeah, it felt like the book just kept moving and moving and moving. It's There's also like, so the dynamic between Percy and Dollarhide Sr., whose first name is Woodrow. Amazing. Woodrow yeah. Dollarhide. Yeah. Woodrow. Like their dynamic is that's my only son and I technically love him, but also I hate him because he's a deadbeat. But he reminds me so much of his mother that I can't actually spend too much time with him because it upsets me is like, mm-hmm. it makes so much sense. And like, that's, that's only in the book. By the time right. the alien invasion is occurring and Harrison Ford is like, Paul Dano, get over here. Let's go. I'm like, why? You don't care about this kid. You don't care about him at all. Why are you doing this? Well, it- I also say in that beginning section, like the cowboys of the movie, I do think it's like kind of funny in a weird way that the book like makes Doc and Maria's relationship where like Doc is the kind of guy who's like, I'm going to speak Spanish at my Mexican wife and like not in the movie. So (laughs) (laughs) Joan just said, hey guys, I'm going to add this into this novelization. And I was like, I don't know about that, but I think it's funny that she was like, here's how you're going to know that he has spent a lot of time with her family. He's just randomly going to speak Spanish to her. And it makes their relationship much more like genuinely affectionate. Where the main interaction we've yeah. seen between them, in, between them in the movie is she's like, you don't have to prove anything. You don't have to prove that you're tough. And he's like, stop belittling me. Like they do not have the same kind of like the sense that they truly love each other and have given up a lot to be together in the book, not carried into the movie. No. Well, I, I think as much as I'm, I agree with this current thing that's like happening on Twitter where everyone's idea of film criticism is like movie should be short. <laughs> it's like, which is something I, this should be long. Look, I've, I've long agreed that like movies can be too long and often are, but it's getting a little, uh, monolithic. How like everyone's take on movies now is like, why are they all two hours twenty? It's like there's other you're factors. paying twenty bucks to go see it. Yeah, you're welcome. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. I I came here so that I wouldn't have to talk to my wife. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I think this movie needed to be longer because it is like with the amount of plot that it covers, it is this breakneck run through like 
Here's a guy. He doesn't remember who he is. He meets 30 people. Then he <laughs> discovers because of his past, he also knows a gang of people. Then they fight the aliens and like the aliens have their own lore. And the fact that it's an hour 58, it's it's incomprehensible. There, there is apparently an extended version, but I think it's only an extra like 15 minutes. Right, right. And I wonder, because there are like plenty of scenes in the book that are just not in the movie at all. And I wonder if those are whole cloth made up or if that's the extended material. And I'm not sure I want to watch the movie again, but longer because I'm not convinced it's going to be better. I think the extended cut, the 15 minutes is just Favreau with like a pointer being like, <laughs> they came yeah. for gold. They, <laughs> they turn it into liquid. Mm. Um, so the, the, the premise that I would have liked to see explored in an alternate movie is they chain Jake and Percy together. And they're like, you're going to jail together. And they have that line about like, if you want to really control a man, chain him to his worst enemy. Like sort of, you'll, you'll be too busy fighting each other to fight us, the cops. And then the aliens show up right then. And I was like, no, give me like a couple chapters of him trying to deal with Percy being chained to his arm. Yeah, I would love if Percy was with the gang who go out to rescue everybody until they meet up with Jake's actual gang and there's like another culling of people. Right. Or even in the um, the upturned river boat. Like, but like an extra 10, 20 minutes with Paul Dano would be fun. He's great. I will say, I was trying to figure out exactly uh, the pages. But like, what is funny to me is like, uh, most of the time... Obviously, movies are longer or shorter than the books, right? Mm -hmm. The first section of this movie, which sets up everybody, introduces you to all these people, is probably like 10 minutes before the aliens show up. And the book is 94 pages. And to me, that feels insane. That they have a, almost 100 pages of setup to get you to the aliens. And this movie said, what if we just throw you in? You don't need to know anybody. You don't need to establish anything. I'm just throwing you in. I know. It's, you need more. Like, you need more yeah. time with these people to later care. A, to care that their loved ones have been taken. B, to care if what happens to them later. Uh, and just, like, to get used to the faces. Like, by the time you get to the big action sequence at the end where there's, like, 50 people fighting... I don't know who I'm looking at. I don't know which characters are getting eaten by aliens and which ones aren't until, like, later, which is not good, in my opinion. And, and all yeah. the characters are paired. It's like, we, we need to get invested in them before the abduction happens because we need to understand that each of these pairings has an abducted person and a left-behind person who cares about them deeply. You know, whether the relationship is grandfather, grandson, husband, wife. It's like, we need to know what's happening. But in the movie, it's like, here's 30 white people. Now it's 15. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it was like, with Doc and Maria especially, like, the only reason I cared is because I was like, oh, that's, what's her name from Narcos? Like, I know <laughs> who she is because I watched the show Narcos. I was like, I feel like otherwise people would be like, I don't know who this woman is. And... Their relationship is, like Hannah said, Doc being like, don't belittle me, and then nothing else, and then all of a sudden she's gone. 
And I can't remember, does the movie even establish that Doc, like, stays up all night making sure everyone is alive and well? No. No. His whole doctoring stuff, like, his doctoring in the beginning, his doctoring at the end, his being a doctor and not a guy who shoots guns, not in the movie, period. And it's so integral to everything that's happening with that character, and they just skip it. I I didn't know the cast of the movie aside from Daniel Craig plays the main guy and Harrison Ford plays someone. (laughs) And I truly thought Doc, the Sam Rockwell character, was like 60. Yeah, I imagine him as Toby Huss, who I had read was in the movie. The Toby Huss casting is the most (laughs) shocking thing I've, like, in the whole film. So (laughs) this actually works with the timeline we're working on here. Prior to Dollarhide coming to get his son out of trouble, he's like, torturing basically a worker of his who was drunk on the job which is kind of irrelevant ultimately um when some sort of alien activity happened that blew up a bunch of his cows and And took two of his guys one of whom is wyatt russell but you wouldn't know i noticed that yeah oh yeah it's crazy two seconds yeah it's wild (laughs) yeah so the alien abduction occurs and of course dollarhide doesn't believe that because they're cowboys and, you know, they haven't hitherto seen an alien. Um, and the I'm reading this book. I'm like, okay, so it's like an out-of-control drunk guy with rage issues. Who's this going to be? I w- did not have my money on Toby Huss. Nope. Oh, in my opinion, a preternaturally gentle actor. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's wild that that's him. I mean, I... My theory of, like, reading these is I'll look up the cast list, I'll look at who's in the movie, and then I get to imagine the right people. Right. And that just didn't work with this one at all. And I don't know if it's because this cast is stacked. Like, there's a ton of famous people in very small roles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, well, Toby Huss is obviously a doc type. And Sam Rockwell is like a, you know, dummy. He's like one of the gang. Or he's right. like maybe the Walton Goggins part or something. Like, That's it exactly just didn't make sense guess, to me yeah. that Toby Huss is in one scene. And Sam Rockwell is, like, what the fifth lead of the movie. No knock on Sam Rockwell, who's great, obviously. Just doesn't feel mm-hmm. right for that part. Feels no. like that should be a guy who's, like, in his 50s trying really hard to just have a nice life. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and Sam Rockwell, I don't know why, like, because I've seen him do other things and he's great, but all I could think of was, like, his Galaxy Quest character. And I was like, he's got to be, like, some dumb guy who's not supposed to be here. I don't think this movie is using Sam Rockwell's talents very well. You know? He just happens to be... not using anyone's well, talents indeed, well. Indeed, exactly. Except maybe Olivia Wilde, but that's also like, okay. Well, let's talk about <laughs> Olivia Wilde. She, her character Ella, who... Well, she's just following Jake like around town and has this fascination with him. It seems evident to me, the reader... That whatever sci-fi shenanigans are happening, she is the person who has knowledge about it, who's going to tell us eventually. Because she's just, like, following our protagonist around, and it doesn't seem like she's just horny. Um, (laughs) And and, she's saying uh, things like, I know what you know. My people were taken to. I'm here because of a thing that happened that you know about. Like, she's laying a lot of track. (laughs) uh, Definitely. Uh, I think Olivia Wilde, is really good in the role when we don't know what's going on with her character. Because she's playing an alien, a very cool concept, that it's revealed that she's an alien who is not the race of the aggressor aliens, but rather another 
planet that was victimized by them. And she's survived and wants to prevent it from happening again. Cool lore. I'm into it. And Olivia Wilde has like a slightly odd looking face. Yes. She's not blinking a whole lot in this movie. She's doing the most wide eyed thing. And she looks alien. And she's like, you know, she's gawking at him in a way that feels rude, which makes her feel alien because she's like too fixated on him. And a lot of her early dialogue is like, I've never spoken a word before. Am I doing it? (laughs) Once she reveals what her deal is and she's like talking more i'm like i don't like this performance she i i don't know it just it just reads as like she just learned the lines today type of deal yeah her character has to go from being like i'm a mysterious woman who has a gun and that's interesting to i know everything that's happening and now i have to present the solution to the rest of the movie and uh, that change doesn't work very well And I'm not sure she's carrying it successfully. Yeah, her having to behave as an alien is weird. Like when they fall into the lake after he rescues her from the flyer, Mm -hmm. and they both are on the edge of the lake, and she's presenting a human performance. I'm like, whew, that was crazy. Thank you. I was like, oh, here we go. This is good acting. This is fun. And then that stops almost immediately because she dies. One of my favorite things about the book and movie is that sequence where they... Uh, escape off of the alien flyer into the lake and then one of them is like wasn't that crazy we were <laughs> flying because it's like the 1800s yeah, Jake <laughs> is like, like Jake yeah, goes I and? never want to do it again they're not he's like, like I don't want to do it again they're not like wasn't that crazy like alien spacecraft I mean if we did that today we'd be like that was nuts alien spacecraft and they had lassos <laughs> to capture people they're just like a car that went into the sky nuts He's like, you know what birds do? We did that. We did the bird thing. People aren't supposed to do that. I don't want to do it again. I didn't like it. Scary. Fast. High up. Also, like, I don't think that the movie did a good job of that scene because I don't remember it being a seesaw thing where in the book he was like, has to be strategic because the thing is like seesawing back and forth and in the movie he was just screaming at <laughs> olivia wilde the entire time like i'm gonna shoot you out yeah, yeah. i mean oh, the yeah. book it really feels like he's figuring out the alien technology yeah. and in the movie he's just like pew pew we good <laughs> i had totally I got forgotten you out. about that the him having to use the the alien craft like a seesaw thing every yeah idea in this book is so rich it's <laughs> actually impossible to like have them all remain in my head yeah well because it's fun like she, like the way he figures out how to use this stuff is really interesting the only thing that both the book and the movie do that i'm like what if you guys established that a lot earlier was when olivia wilde tells him hey, you you control the gun, like, it's all in your mind. But she tells him that at the end of the fucking book and yes, movie. Yes, yes. Like, I was just like, why would you not tell him that at the start of it so that he can, like, save people? There's <laughs> so many points where like, he's like, work, 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 damn it, and it won't, and people die. Well, and it, yeah, like, it's, sure, in theory, the people who are up in the ship, fine. But... Nat died, Meacham died, uh, I think someone else got killed just, like, on the journey there. And so it's like, you 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 watch, like, four people die and you could have helped in any way. But you went, I'm going to wait and I'm going to kiss this man. And then he's going to realize he's in control. How was he going to control it? Because when she tells him, 
you control it with your mind. He's like, he's trying to get it off his wrist. And he's like, yeah. get off me. Get <laughs> off me. And it like won't do well, it. I think she explains it poorly. I think it's it's instinctual. Yeah. Like it's yeah. part of him. And if he just like uses it, it works. And if he thinks about it, it doesn't work. So She could have like alluded instead of being like, she could have just been like, try this. And so then when he would try it, it would kind of like, she could have like led him into figuring it out. She also could have been like, let's get that gun off you way earlier because I know how to use it. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, so at the end of the movie when he needs to get the bracelet off and it doesn't come off until she kisses him, is the bracelet being like, you're about to get nude. Let me help. No. (laughs) You know what? Maybe. Because in the book, even in the book, it doesn't say like why. It's just like he... Because even when he's thinking about her, the bracelet is still on his wrist. And all of a sudden, it's just like, oh, wait, never mind. Bye. There are some insanely horny moments in the book. Oh, in the book? Such as? Going back to where we were, um, when her clothes are wet and he's like talking about it. Meanwhile, they're not safe. No. Because she instantly gets killed. But like he's like the way her wet dress clung to her body or something. They're like holding each other on the beach and he's like her warm human body. Like it's really (laughs) (laughs) It's weird, man. There's a couple moments where I was like, like, we don't need this, Joan. We don't need this. (laughs) Joan. Too horny. Hey, Joan. Joan. (laughs) At the point when they are both arrested and chained together, him and Dollarhide. That's when <laughs> yeah. the alien invasion happens. And yes. the in- alien invasion, the writing, is good. <laughs> yes. So let me hit just a little of it. Uh, da, 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 da. I think the alien invasion is already in progress at this point. Jake remembered to take another breath, just as lightning out of nowhere split the sky open over the buildings at street's end. An invisible storm swept down the street toward him, whirling the dust into choking clouds, shaking the ground and buildings with explosions like deep thunder. A different kind of light, a brilliant actinic blue, dropped out of the sky in sweeping cones, rolling over the streets and buildings, illuminating clouds of dust and smoke, silhouetting the people and animals running blindly through the whirlwind, seeking escape where there wasn't any. Streaks of darkness began to lick down through the cones of light like whips. No, bolas. With weighted strands at their ends, spreading open like fingers. He saw them close around human bodies to jerk them off a horse's back or off the ground like lassoed steers. But the bolas carried their helpless victims screaming into the sky. Into something. And then you watch the movie and it's like, the aliens have ropes! Yeah, and that scene takes place in the dead of night for reasons unknown, so it's very hard to follow what's happening. I I mean, it's supposed to be, I guess. It's chaotic, it's overwhelming, it's a lot happening. But, like, Mm -hmm. the way it is written in the book, where you're basically spending, like, little moments with these little people, where, like, Percy gets grabbed, and there's, like, a little moment where, like, Jake watches Nat, like run to Dollar Hide and check on him and put an armor on him and make sure he's okay. And then the story like moves on to other characters experiencing things. It just feels like more focused, more like dr- character driven. Um, and I don't think the action in the movie is that good. There's that one moment in the movie where uh, the where Taggart tries to get Emmett, his grandson, out from like the, under that stage he's hiding under. And as he's like, come on, you trust me, come with me. He gets snatched up. And then mm-hmm. Ella goes over and is like, 
come on to safety and and it's like i just did this i'm not coming out (laughs) yeah that's not safety that is a good moment but there's like 12 of those in the book yeah oh it's so good it's so good it's and so then yeah. they're like, we got to go save our people. They, they, what, Jake shoots down one me, of the flyers. Yeah. Explain to me. Yeah. He shoots down one of the flyers. There's, they don't find an alien or any of the captives inside. Where does the alien that's on foot come from? Did it sneak out of the crashed flyer? Yes. Okay. And then it rampages through town, kills Kill- a couple people. And in the book and the movie, they're like these fucking bastards they killed two more people on their way out but they don't say who it was they're just like no just people we didn't know just people who got like their blood smeared all over their beautiful glass windows right um, <laughs> oh yeah it's aggressive in the in the movie it's, <laughs> there's just blood it's on brutal the dude like, and I feel like that's in the book and it feels like, oh shit, that's gnarly. Like they've just been snatching people and blowing people up and suddenly here's a thing that's like causing blood and screams and terror. Um, right, it's wild. it's maybe the only killing in the movie that feels malicious. Because like they, it, obviously I don't agree with the alien's motivation, but they're doing all this stuff to some end. And that's the only one where it's like the thing just runs through town and kills some innocents. Yeah, who were not for no it. reason, just like just like ah. Yeah, they're meanies. I'm on a they're rampage. It runs out of town. Dollar Hyde and Jake and the deputy, who is a character in the book and is not a character in the movie whatsoever. Right. Charlie Lyle. Oh yeah, the one that got shot. I know. I don't think he's the one who got shot. I think he's. I thought a different Charlie one. was the one who got shot in the arm and like is fine in the book, but in the movie is just kind of down for the count. No, I think I think a different deputy gets shot in the oh arm, and Charlie God. is like, now I'm the sheriff, and I have to take care of this. Um, and I look, the actor who plays Charlie Lyle is like a guy who is like the Pedro Pascal like body double stunt performer for like half of the Mandalorian, and I was like, oh, I'm wow. so excited to see this guy act. With his we're, face, we're, and he ain't in the movie. <laughs> he's barely. I was very disappointed. I was like, where is Charlie Lyle, who I like? <laughs> so, uh, fr- not here. From there, uh, what is it? It's just sort of a decision to go after them. They basically yeah. say, let's follow the one that ran off. We're putting together a posse. We're chasing it down. And Jake is like, not me. I'm going to go back to my cabin where he vaguely remembers Alice and is like, oh, they he took her. Yet I guess I the sh- abduction that no, that I but he reca- knows that, I that she, yeah. she was there and she meant something to him, and then now she's not, and maybe they the aliens have her. So he goes back to town and joins up with the posse. They ride You're, out. I'm sorry that I have so many Whoa. passages, but it's such a good book. Oh so, no, please. Page eighty. I don't mind. His instincts were telling him it was past time for him to find a horse and get the hell out of town before he found out what it was exactly that he really deserved. And yet, some part of his mind realized now exactly what the weapon was telling him. And it wasn't something his instincts wanted to hear. It was telling him not to go, that he didn't need to run, that if those things were demons, he was a demon hunter, the only one in town, that he wanted to do this, and what the hell did he have to lose? Here's my question. Uh-huh. Uh, these people. Uh-huh. 
did they all just assume that everyone was alive and well with the aliens? Because I don't understand why they all, like, I understand the need to be like, we got to hunt these guys down and kill them. They're going to kill more of us. That I get. But throughout the movie and the book, they're like, we have to save our people. I'm like, how do you know they're still alive? You're right. I mean, they don't. But how do you <laughs> They do know? talk about how that, though. Know? Yeah, there's a conversation between Doc and one of Dollar Hyde's, like, hand, ranch hand guys who's mean, where Doc says, like, um, well, if they wanted to kill him, they would have just killed him. They killed people in town, and they took a bunch yeah. of them. So why would they take them just to kill them later? Which I think is it's a valid like, point. It is just one of those, like, oh, I guess they're just, like, going on faith because they're like, we have to save our people. And look, you're correct. They were, they were alive and well in the alien ship. <laughs> but if it was me, I'd be like, can we just kill these guys and like destroy the ship? Like Let's they're, start they're there. dead. I mean, it is, I think <laughs> for me, very sad when you realize that Alice is no longer savable, that she is so unbelievably dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that Jake is like, well, I guess I'm going to keep going on this quest, even though I've remembered that my girlfriend got disintegrated. Right. It becomes a revenge quest for him. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping that he would save her. <laughs> I don't know. It, I thought it would be nice. Oh, when she fell down, like, in his flashbacks, like, in the movie, I was like, oh, yeah, the movie makes it very clear, like, no, this woman's dead. The movie disintegrates dead. her body. <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> like, really? Yeah. The, the alien mm. takes out a little scanner thing, and you're like, okay, he's scanning for, you know, whatever, heart murmur or something. And then after he scans her, the whole body disintegrates. Yeah, oh my God. <laughs> he's like, there's no question. There's no question. Never about seen someone who's more dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, can you imagine being a person who's like allergic to dust and then that happens to your significant other? You have, oh you have to be like, not only am I grieving, but I need to not, I need to do it elsewhere. <laughs> You're like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. For the listener, Rachel's covering her face. Yeah, I put a blanket. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. <sighs> so they ride out of town. They're hunting down. They're following the injured alien, and then it starts to rain. And they come across an overturned Mississippi River paddleboat, which the I guess has of been the desert. Right, which I guess has been in picked up by the aliens and dropped there, is the idea. Yeah, because they're in New Mexico. Yeah, there ain't no water here. <laughs> yeah, that is a really good question. How did that happen? Because, like, by the time they go into the riverboat, like, there's no people there. Like, everything seems like it has been alien snatched up. But also, why would they take the whole boat? Right. It's very interesting and exciting in the book to have this mystery of like what's going on in the riverboat it's like buying like a like a 12 pack they were just like, there's a lot of humans in there just pick up the boat <laughs> just grab the boat someone gotta have gold right <laughs> i mean probably it's a gambling boat i assume oh yeah good point. and i think the sequences in the boat which are spooky in the book and you're like what's around every corner the ship is upside down so you're like working around like broken furniture and upside down chandeliers and stuff very cool jake like takes his shirt off to look at his wound and they have a sexy weird moment where mm-hmm. ella's like yeah i was looking and <laughs> oh yeah he's like were you watching and she's like Yes. And then <laughs> and then he later says some or she repeats something back to him that he said like three minutes earlier and he thinks she really was watching me for a while. <laughs> I thought I was alone, but I was not alone. <laughs> what is a wild reveal to me about Ella as a character is like 
later in the book, she says, like, these human feelings. So, in theory, the reason that she's super attracted to him is just because she took a human form, not, like, anything about her as an alien or a being was that way. It is just that she took a human form. So I was like, how does it... She got it- human horny. Yeah. She looked at that <laughs> like, belt little body and was like, yes, please. When when like, he... Did uh, I say this already? When, he, when they kiss at the end, he... Or she is like, oh, this doesn't do much for me because I'm an alien and I'm not attracted to humans, except... <laughs> physiologically i'm having a response because human body yeah that's yeah. crazy it, and he's like yeah. full boner basically like yeah, could not yeah, be hotter totally. he's her. like he found out she was an alien goes doesn't matter i still love you and she's like i'm telling you i am an alien and my body wants you but i don't i'm not interested like, you're a fly it to me. it doesn't compete <laughs> it's kind of a, their dynamic becomes very strange the moment she's like i'm an alien and this fake and he's like hot though and she's like fake not a person <laughs> like, don't care he's like boobs do- though like- at some point during this movie if i were him i'd be like did you invent this body or is this a dead person <laughs> that's a really <laughs> good question take this from a deceased woman yeah are you possessing <laughs> is a this the wonder or? is this the wonder woman 1984 problem where you just like <laughs> took someone's body and then that and then killed them or <laughs> is this like what, what's I'm going praying on? to God that in every Wonder Woman, they just inexplicably bring Chris Pine back, and it gets more desperate and thirsty each time. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there uh, is a point when she steps out of the fire, and he's like, why didn't you tell me? As if it's explainable. And she says, I didn't know if I could heal this body. I didn't know if I would come mm-hmm. back. And it's like, that to me feels like she has stolen a corpse. Yes, definitely. Kind of. in, in the middle of the film, for the for the listener, Ella has died, and she they start burning her body, and she stands up out of the flames, and everyone is like, totally, you know, in awe of it, understandably. And there is a part towards the end of the book where someone is talking about how awestruck they are about the alien spacecraft. And I, I, I don't have the passage on hand, but basically... The person is like, the alien spacecraft rose above me, and it it was it was so unbelievable. It was the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen, except for that woman walking out of the fire. That was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and in the movie, I do like that it's like the only thing I can think to compare it to, which is is bad too, is like in the. F- movie harry potter and the half-blood prince Mm -hmm. when snape turns around he's like i'm the half-blood prince and it's bad and you laugh at it that is what this felt like where she was like i didn't know if i could heal my body and she like looks over her shoulder as she's saying it or whatever and i just was just like oh okay this movie is doing a bad job of explaining what's going on where in the book it at least is a little softer when he's like you should have told me and she was like i didn't know yeah, they have like a much more like quiet, how? private moment yeah. where in the movie they're standing around with everybody and he's pretty mad. And she's like, I'm kind of busy explaining this to everyone. So, <sighs> I mean, it is like reading the book going in blind when she, I mean, this is, I guess, no, we'll just come back to it when we get there chronologically. It's fine. <laughs> Riverboat adventure. Alien is there. We think it eats the dog. Thankfully, it doesn't. Emmett just a, gets just a fun 
yes. line from when they're in the riverboat, which there's a lot of like they're gonna sleep in the riverboat. It's gonna be their shelter, and there's just a lot of little character moments. I just like this paragraph. Someone's watching Dollarhide. Dollarhide was peeling an apple with his Bowie knife as he stared into the fire. He peered the whole apple with one perfect spiral motion. A his thing hands... Harrison Ford could not do on camera. It's very clear. Yes. His hands were so skillful, he could have cut a man's heart out blindfolded. Intense thing to think when you're just like watching a guy peel an apple. Cool apple peeling, bro. Bet you could pull a guy's heart out blindfolded. Well, that whole... I can't remember where it is in the sequence of events, because I think it's on, with the river boat, but I think it might be after, too. I In the book, I like where it goes from, like, okay, they all are in survival mode. They're all trying to figure out how to help each other. Someone is like, we got to help Doc learn how to shoot a gun and, like, protect himself. But in the movie, it feels very, like, all of a the sudden they're teaching someone how to shoot with no context yes. into how that and we happens. don't even know that he can't. Yeah. Yeah. No. Nope. So <laughs> they were just it's like, like, why are they teaching him? Who's this guy? Yeah. I mean, all of the moments in the riverboat, like Meacham teaching Doc to shoot, very good. Dollar Hyde and Emmett having a moment of like, you want a knife? Okay, you could have mm-hmm. a knife. Maybe I can be a dad. Maybe me dad. Be good dad. Is <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. Like Jake and Ella having their little thing is pretty good. And then when the action explodes, you're like, ah! These people that I care about even more now. I've learned even more about them. I don't want that 12-year-old boy to get killed by an alien. I was not clear on that boy's age. I'm sure it was stated early on and I missed it, but I... He is like a young teen, Well, when they, were exp- when they started to treat him more adultly towards the end, I was like, is this kid like 17? Like, I was very unclear on it, but it... it- oh, in the movie, I, I sincerely thought this kid was younger than he was, and in the movie, I was like, that's like a 15-year-old kid. Wait, how old is he? I thought he was like 10. And so that's why they were all like, we don't really want to put you in the middle of all this. We know you've seen a lot. However, there's aliens. So here's a knife. Have at it. Right. Like, I thought he was way younger than he is. I think the kid that they cast, who is um, from M. Night Shyamalan's Avatar The Last Airbender movie, his only other film credit, <laughs> I think he's quite good in that role. Yeah, I like really him good. as Emmett. I think he's bringing, he's like very, he has such big eyes and he seems really scared and sweet. And I think he's good. Just want to give him a little credit. I feel like he probably gets knocked on a lot. <laughs> Hannah, can I pimp you into reading a passage? Sure. Okay, on 149, we get good Doc backstory, starting with Doc Mm. cracked open the rifle. Oh, Doc. Doc cracked open the rifle's breech and reloaded it, fumbling with the bullets in his anger and frustration. Maria was, was right. I ain't no gunfighter, ain't no saloon owner. He was a doctor. But here in the territories where he'd grown up, a genuine doctor was still as much of a freak as he'd been to his own family. A small, sickly boy growing up with a father and brothers who believed in an Old Testament God. And that what defined a man was his ability to beat down or shoot anyone who didn't believe the same. They'd called him Mama's Boy because his mother had tried to protect him along with herself until finally the misery of her life had driven her to alcohol and he'd lost her to sorrow and drink. Compelling backstory for a sensitive Sam Rockwell mustache really compelling glasses. compelling backstory. And, and I feel like this is a stylistic choice that Vinge is making. You know, you, you read something like Willow, which was not written by Joan Vinge. It was written by Waylon Drew. And... Um, <laughs> There's those 
uh, headers where it's like, here's the journey of this character. And you get a little backstory about what they've been through that led them to the events of Willow, which is a very in-your-face stylistic choice. It's like a literal format break. And Joan is doing the same thing in this book, except she just weaves it into an existing chapter. And she goes, okay, this shitty script where the doc is just suddenly shooting a rifle for no reason... This is where I'll talk about everything that led him to this moment. And she gives that to every character. Mm -hmm. I mean, the thing with Doc that pays off really nicely in the book is that by the end, like, A, he has learned to shoot decently, but really he's embraced his abilities as a doctor. And Mm -hmm. his appearance at the end is as a doctor, not as a guy with a rifle. Where in the movie, he shows up to shoot an alien. And you're like, I guess he achieved that. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. Could have used I, more doctoring. He I does was so... save a life. I mean, that that's important. That, is that the, the shot that he takes does save Emmett? Save somebody. So, somebody. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember. I think... Uh, I can't remember who he It's saved, a dramatic yeah. moment where the alien's head explodes, and then it falls down to reveal it was Doc who did the shooting. Yeah. Well, like, the thing about this character is, like I said earlier... There's a whole passage, and the reason that he is with them in the first place is because I think it was Dollarhide was like, you can come with us, because the night before he spent all night long making sure people were alive and well and taking care of people and being a doctor. And in the movie, they're just like, we just call him Doc. Like, it is... It's not established. I mean, I feel like there's a point in the book when some... Like, I think Jake is like, oh, he's actually a doctor. I thought that that was just like a mean nickname because he wears glasses. But right. okay, he's a doctor. Got it. <laughs> Which is very charming. But movies said, eh, yeah. we don't need it. And I, I you like just assume? so many of these characters are fighters that to have Doc as like the opposite side of that, who's not a fighter, he's a healer, is nice to have in the party. Um, and it feels like a waste to cut that out of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the movie, I, I, uh, it just seems action-focused and development-focused. It's like conveying strictly what we need to know. They find the riverboat. We can't skip that. So we got to show them finding it. Then we basically go directly to the point where the alien shows up in the riverboat and kills Preacher Meacham and, and whatnot. Which, speaking to your point, Rachel, about how the beginning of this book... It's like 94 pages, and in the movie, it's like two minutes. Mm-hmm. Meacham in the movie, it's like, hi, my name's Meacham. I'm the guy who's nice to you. I died. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I, I, I thought he was Harrison Ford in the book. And then I watched the movie, and I was like, of course he's not Harrison Ford. We're 27 minutes into the movie. <laughs> I think they misunderstood. Sorry to John Favreau. But I think they, who I love to death. Mm-hmm. I think they just looked at this story and was like, it's sci-fi and that's all it is. When what's fun about this novelization is like learning about the characters and not so much the aliens who look creepy and are scary and I don't like them. Like I would rather care about all these people who are like, hi, I'm trying to survive an alien attack. And it's just like, you're like, okay, I guess we're back fighting an alien when you're watching the movie and in the book it never feels that way i think it's a misunderstanding of westerns as a genre as well that like trying Mm. to meld sci-fi and western is a cool idea and i like it but westerns are very much about people in difficult situations 
And they're not action-driven because most Westerns were made in a time when action couldn't be the star of your movie. You still had to have, like, an actor presenting a character doing dialogue, convincing Clint Eastwood to stay and defend the town, you know? And so to cut out all the character moments, um, you lose all the Western parts. It just happens to be a location now. And that's a, a weakness. That's not the meld you want. Like, I want the Western sci-fi to be equal at best, you know, or I want more Western, to be honest. Well, to your point, Hannah, I think the thing I love about the book is that the characters in the book feel like they could be in a story that is a Western, that is the plot of which is the this guy who robbed, like, one of our most important citizens has returned to the town, and we should bring him to justice, but also the guy he robbed has, like, a rampaging ego, and that's, like, a threat to our town. Like, I mean, even the even the concept of, like, this guy showed back up who is a criminal, but mm-hmm. he we need him to solve a different problem, is a Western. That happens all the time in Westerns. Like, we don't like him, we don't trust right. him, but he has a specific skill, he has a specific tool, he's whatever, that's going to help us fight off the Indians, dam up a river, you know, whatever. I mean, you could make this movie without aliens, and it would um, demonize Native Americans 100%, because they right. would have to be your villains who have kidnapped half your town or whatever. Like, I appreciate that they this movie is like, no, 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 the aliens are bad and the Indians are good. Um, but, like, you could make this as a straight Western, and it would work, and it would be good. Well, I think that even without the kidnapping element, it just feels like these are characters that could have their own Western. They don't In the book, yeah. they don't feel created for to be sci-fi fodder. And I love a story like that. I love when it feels like people have their own deal going on. They're real people with real lives. And then the craziest sci-fi thing imaginable happens to them. And what then? Mm-hmm. Whereas in the movie, it's like yeah. these people were created to hunt the aliens. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they're, they're very two-dimensional in the movie in a way that was so disappointing after reading this book. Yeah, and I would even say like, the way that, like, the movie also shows, like, the Native Americans, I felt like this is even a little too racist for 2011. Like, you guys should have known to not. But, like, it was also, like, they were just like, here is the five minutes that we're giving you to know who the Apache are. Right. And we have to make sure you know that this is a Native American tribe. And instead of doing any work uh, around that, they just said, nah, it's okay. We're just going to lean into stereotypes a little bit. And so, I mean, there's a scene in the exists. book where, like, the Native Americans who are, like, a mixture of tribes who have been so depleted yeah. that they've joined up are doing, like, pre-battle war dance. And, like, Nat catches Emmett watching and is like, you shouldn't be watching this. That's I not shouldn't for be your watching eyes, this. right? Right. And I'm not Indian enough, I feel. So I'm going to also go. And the Native Americans like, no, no, you should come experience this aspect of your culture. Sit quietly and watch, which feels like really like the kind of like humanization of these Apache and, you know, Native American characters who we don't spend a lot of time with to be like, no, they're they see him and want to help him discover himself. And that's like a tiny moment that the book gives that just like blossoms the larger group in Mm -hmm. a way that's so strong not in the movie real shame (laughs) there was a bunch of like little scenes towards the end of the book that i was like there's no way this is in the movie and they weren't they weren't in the movie (laughs) this book has a thesis i think which is which is cool (laughs) like she uses uh 
everyone's journey to build evidence that ultimately proves teamwork makes your dream work. Like to like, but the way she does it is she's like, okay, this person is experiencing prejudice, like dollar hide, and in giving up their prejudice, they're able to have victories that they wouldn't otherwise. This person, Nat Colorado, is like, you know, it, it feels split between two worlds, and maybe learns that existing between two worlds is okay. Because those worlds can live in harmony. And she slowly puts these bricks in the wall. And then kind of, as much as I don't like the overblown point that she makes at the end of the book, she does a good job of supporting it. Which is then she earns the last couple chapters of really all types of people coming together is what was necessary for the aliens to be to be toppled. Mm-hmm. And I just don't think we see that often. I mean, even for something like Revenge of the Sith, where... They're adding in chapters basically to emotionally justify things that felt rushed in the movie. It feels like they're supporting whatever point the movie was already making. Whereas Joan Vinge here is saying, this is a... What am I trying to say? It's a thematically moribund piece of media. It just exists to exist. To do a movie called Cowboys and Aliens. To get to get people into theaters. But I am going to take the bones of it that are in the script and build a point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's inventive. Yeah. 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 Uh, in a way that the movie isn't. No. I mean, um, by the time the tide <laughs> turns in the battle at the end and the human beings start winning, I don't know why in the movie. Mm-hmm suddenly their rifles kill them better suddenly they're able to stab them better and it's not clear like why it's working and the book is so good about making explicit like you just need to have two people on any one alien right working together to stab them differently um such a well and like the so red well scar stuff too mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Rachel. The red scar stuff is not talk in to the talk to the, the movie. listeners about red scar let them know Ooh. what's up so uh Jake, after, uh, to go back a little, because where we were in the breakdown, uh, Jake, when he's with the Apache, they're like, we have a medicine man. He can help you remember. Like, we have a guy who can help you. So he remembers his uh, capture. He remembers trying to escape. And then, like, later it is revealed that he remembers maiming one of the aliens. And he gives him a scar. And so he, ha- this alien has, like, a red scar and he knows, like, that's the alien that, like, killed Alice. It's the alien that had me. Like, I'm getting revenge for Alice. And I'm going after this alien when he's on the ship and sees him. But in the book, it doesn't... Or in the movie, it doesn't exist. So you you know reading the book, like, okay, he's going after that alien for what he did. He's getting mm-hmm. his revenge. And so you feel this, like, I want him to succeed. Where in the movie, you're just like, he's just trying to, like, kill another alien. Like, we've seen him do it, and it loses the, like, importance of seeing him finally, like, kind of destroy this alien that he knows made him forget everything and ruin his life. The book, like, winds down to this, like, one-on-one standoff between Jake and the Red Scar alien. Like a a Western. And the movie's just like, (laughs) I don't know, we're busy, got a lot going on. The movie's just like, he's mad, what else do you need? (laughs) I will say, I do think I... I'm going to credit this movie. This is not based in any knowledge. This isn't based in me understanding anything. It's simply what I'm accepting. That this movie made Jon Favreau so mad 
that people were like, you don't know Westerns, that he said, uh, fuck you guys. I'm making the Mandalorian. So then he knows. Did you know it's like, a Western? I know it's what a Western, Western is. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I know what a Western is. The screenwriters didn't. <laughs> so I'm showing you that I know what a Western is. And that is just now my headcanon for this movie. <laughs> that John Favreau was like, I'm going to show you I know what a Western is. And made the Mandalorian. Mm, can't really call it a Western because uh, that's like on the Z axis of the graph. Space. <laughs> what would that even be? A Z-stern. A Z-stern, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a dumb joke, but then, like, I'm going to make a Z-stern, and it's going to become, like, one of those annoying terms you start hearing all the time. I'll and, be like, so proud of li- you. Listicles that are, like, you know, the films that it, that inspired the Z-sterns of Andrew Overby. <laughs> <laughs> Film Twitter is going to be like, uh, I think Cowboys and Aliens is a great Z-stern. And you're going to be like, no, stop. Prospect? Z-stern, not a Western. Oh, Prospect. Pro- Hi, Z-stern. That's a Z-stern. That's a, a definite. That is a That's a definite Z-stern. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. We're doing it, guys. Get ready, Hannah. Get ready to hear that term in 10 more episodes. Can't wait. Can't, I'm, I'm, I think you've coined a useful term because space western is too long and the z-axis is something everyone understands well that's the only problem with z-stern is that i'm gonna start casually throwing it around like people get it and then every time i'm gonna be like they'll be like see what i mean by that zombie zombie western z-stern yeah exactly um yeah they're like he's he loves zombie land i don't understand he just brings it up zombie land he calls them z-sterns when am i getting they're all set in space there's no zombies so when they're attacked in the riverboat (laughs) (laughs) yes there's just a good a good uh description of action that i thought was cool page 160 before a single man could fire a single shot the demon swung a forelimb the size of a small tree its hide was as thick as armor plating and its hand ended in razor sharp slashing talons the arm came down ripping through flesh snapping human bones as if they were bird legs a man's scream of terror and pain began and ended cut off in a gurgle and a fountain of blood Drowned out by sounds of inhuman frenzy. Go off, Joan. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. Truly. I mean... This movie. It, uh, like, this... Joan, I guess, had free range when she was writing this to just make this movie palatable. Um, And I respect her for it. She said, I'm gonna make it work Mm -hmm. uh, in a way the movie doesn't. Because I can't even remember how the movie goes from the riverboat. So I, I was going to ask you that, Hannah. Where, where do we yeah. where do we go from the riverboat? They leave the riverboat. They're riding. They're being followed by Native Americans. And Jake thinks maybe they're going to be ambushed, but they aren't. They're ambushed by Walton Goggins and some other guys. Which, okay, in the movie, because yeah. in the book it makes it very clear that the other, it's like, there's a white guy, and then there is a Mexican man. Yes. The Walt, the white guy, obviously, is Walton Goggins. Hunt and Brock. Brock, yeah. Yeah. And Brock always has a cigar. I don't remember any of that from in the movie. I mean, yeah. We spend so much less time with Jake's gang on a whole that, like, I know Walton Goggins because I know his face, but the rest yeah. of the gang is kind of a mystery. And by the end, when... Hunt and Bronco like climb the spaceship with Jake. I was like, oh, here's 
the Mexican guy, who is very charming. That's a charming little actor in a very charming little role. Um, not as rich as it is in the book. Because there's like, this is a bunch of scenes yeah. with the two of them representing like the better parts of Jake's gang. But they, Jake's it, like, ah, yes, my gang. I knew that. <laughs> and convinces Hunt to take him back to the rest of the gang for, I guess, thinking that they'll end up with some support, that he'll, like, get his gang to come with them on the alien hunt. Yeah, I think that, like, that is Jake's thinking, but it doesn't, doesn't work, work out, out at all. Because they <laughs> ride up to the rest of the gang, and Dolan, who is Irish... In a way that I was like, let Daniel Craig be British then. He's not very good at this flat American accent. Oh, yeah. That's the guy who kept going, her. Yeah. He, her. It's, it's, not like the, it's not like a full leprechaun accent, which I kind of thought that it might be. <laughs> um, but it's like a little Irish. And I was like, it's okay for Daniel Craig to be an immigrant outlaw. Just let him be British. Whatever. So Dolan is like, this is my gang now. You don't get to roll back up and declare it yours and take our guys. Where's our gold? You stole all of our gold. We have a ton of dynamite here, by the way. Just lay on that track for later. We stole it from some mines. Um, they beat up Jake, and then Jake's alien gun shoots Dolan. So he has, like, it shoots, like, a hole in him. Yeah. It's pretty rough. Um, and they are like, okay, we're leaving. Bye. And Jake, like, grabs his townspeople, and they run away, at which point aliens attack. This is another example, the whole thing with the gang, of, like, the thing I love about the sh- the shifting status quo of mm-hmm. the novelization Cowboys and Aliens. Because it's so fleet-footed, the way that these reveals just come on top of each other. He doesn't know who he is. It turns out he's a thief. It turns out he's a thief, and he robbed this specific guy who's here now. Then, he's the scourge of the territories. Then the narrative opportunity of him being a thief means he has thief connections we don't know about. Wow, exciting in its own right. To then immediately be followed by, and he has bad blood with his own thief people. This is just the type of of narrative that's just so exciting to me. It just keeps giving. It's never like, oh, this scene is sort of the same status quo, the same goal as the last one. And even within the gang dynamic, you have this up and down of, like, some people like Jake more. Some people are sticking with Dolan. Who's going to come out on top? And that happens a couple of times in the book where you don't know if Jake's going to be able to, like, talk his way into getting these guys to support him. Right, right. One thing that's fun in the movie is that immediately Walton Goggins is like, oh, you're my favorite boss. You're my favorite (laughs) boss. Dolan's like, not working so well for me. Don't love him. Please come back. <laughs> we miss you. I miss you. I, you've always been my favorite, and I want you to know that. I don't care that you broke my tooth. You're my guy. <laughs> Very funny, charming, not in the book. Yeah, I hope uh, I, I, I hope that the reason Walton Goggins hated him was because of just how he said whore. <laughs> Hiller. Yeah, terrible. Hiller the entire time. I was time. shocked That's to learn watching this movie that Daniel Craig is an American actor who's been doing these British accents for years. I mean, when I saw him playing an American, I was like, this is it. This is like the real man. Um, 
I don't know. <laughs> he has you... the most like Britishy face in the world. He has it's the most like, Britishy so... face, and the accent in this is atrocious. So it, it's like impeding his acting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is always a bummer. Because he, he's like, I am American. <laughs> yeah, it's and like thankfully Jake doesn't have a lot of dialogue in the movie. Like he's mostly like a brooding, silent presence. But then he has to say anything, and you're like, ooh. Ooh, not good. Not believable. But and Daniel Craig, much better at accents now. Oh, I don't yeah, know what was happening in 2011. I mean, I also think, like, asking a British person to do a foghorn leghorn voice is good, always, and they can do it. Yes. Asking a British person to do, like, a normal, flat American accent, they're going to sound like Benedict Cumberbatch. And then, and then like, he's no like, one's good at it. Daniel Craig on set is like, uh, tell me some backstory about my character. And they're like, you don't know anything about yourself. And he's like, oh, great. <laughs> great. Okay. okay. He went, he went method and just fully forgot his entire life was like, the I only thing I know I is English. A pretty funny joke in the movie. <laughs> my, uh, my favorite Daniel Craig fact is when he was doing girl with the dragon tattoo, a movie I haven't seen. Uh, Very good movie. I'll check it out. I like uh, I like a Finch. Um, it's good. He uh, Fincher told him to get fat because that's like in keeping with that character, and he didn't. And Fincher was like, "Why didn't you get fat? Like you agreed you would get fat." And Daniel Craig was like, "I tried. I tried to get fat, but it wasn't possible." <laughs> this is the inverse of Ryan Gosling getting fat for. Uh, lovely bones and then getting fired because he was too fat they were like, who <laughs> yeah. asked you to do that we didn't want you to do that <laughs> oh, buddy. oh man anyway right, the great so- gift that is Walton Goggins <laughs> appears briefly in the movie and that character has so much more happening in the book has like four extra scenes that I was so excited to watch yeah, Walton Goggins play it didn't happen he leaves his gang what yeah. what happens? We must be getting towards the part where all of the Apache characters are introduced. Right. They flee the gang. The gang chases them. The aliens show up and take some of the gang and Charlie Lyle and then Ella. And then we have the flyer adventure where Jake jumps on its back Cecil. and they fly and it's crazy. And he shoots it down and they almost kiss on the beach. But then she gets killed and he stumbles back to his people with her and he's like she's okay right they're like she's so dead he carries she's her super she, dead. she was like immediately dead he carries her for like an hour and then he's like yeah. can you save her and they're like no, no. she's deceased the book is so good about he's like dead. concussed dehydrated physically battered that he like cannot handle one more trauma so he's like she's fine and I'm gonna make sure she's fine because I mentally, if she's dead, I'm broken. Right. The book is so strong in that. In the movie, he's just like, I've been walking for 20 minutes. Is she okay? So weak. Really disappointing. Now it is disappointing a little bit that she comes back to life because killing her at that point in the story, about halfway into the movie, maybe a little more, is narratively rule breaking in a way I found very exciting because mm-hmm. they have just done. Meacham dying in the riverboat and Meacham sort of the older wiser character and as he dies he he gets his his line out that's of of incredible meaning to the protagonist where he says you know if God doesn't care who you've been he cares who you are it's like oh, so resonant that's what this whole book's about and then for then right after that the romantic lead to bite it I was like mm-hmm. whoa 
and in a way that is just like a whoopsies, basically. Like it's not nothing is happening that she like dies saving someone or whatever. She's just like not paying attention. Neither of them are paying attention, well, and because they gets escape thrashed death. by a monster. They escape death, and then they're having their little woo moment, and she gets killed during that. Yeah, it's like very anticlimactic and like rule breaking, like you say. And then yeah, she comes back like four minutes later. Yeah, yeah. Um, the apat- barely she is thrown on a fire and then instantly is like, "Hello, I've risen." <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, so like the moment they're like, "She's dead." Sorry, bro. The Native Americans roll up and are like, "You're captured. You're coming with us. We're gonna kill you. We hate you." It- and I don't remember how it happens in the movie, but in the book, at least, like Nate is or Nat is like, um, "Hey, I'm Apache. Don't kill us." And so they're prisoners, but otherwise they would be dead. Right. Like Nat is able to talk them out of immediate murder. Yeah. Um, and Dollarhide is very much like, "Kill us! Kill us right now! I know you're going to kill us, so just kill us!" Like a really a huge PTSD response. Right, just like right. I've seen what you do, and I don't want to be anywhere near it. Just kill me, please. Um, pretty and it amazing. was so fun in the it was so fun in the book li- watching like Nat listen to Dollar High and then be like okay and then like explain to them something completely different because mm-hmm. he was like I don't want what that guy is saying to be what Black Knife hears yeah. so but they were like and even in the book they established it's like oh yeah you could like you could tell that the Apache heard his tone and were like. That's not what that guy just said. One moment in the movie that I think is very good is, like, they're having, like, a powwow council meeting, basically, and, like, Nat is translating, and Dollarhide is, like, speaking, and at one point Nat turns to him and is like, you you can't talk. You should you should not talk. They don't want you to talk. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean I can't talk? And he's like, please, please just don't. Just zip, zip, just for a bit. You, as as, <laughs> yeah, their, as their guest, you shouldn't talk. Guest? I thought I was their prisoner. He's like, okay, either way, just, yeah. like, zip it. Because um, that's in the book, too, because he's like, you should shut up. Uh, no one's allowed to talk in here unless they say you can. Which I was like, is that a real thing? Or is that him just being like, just shut up? I, I'll find a way to get you to be quiet. And if it's lie to you and say like, oh no, like unless you're called on, you can't speak. Like, so be it. Nat is great. Great character. Adam Beach is giving a nice performance in a limited role. I wish he had more of it. It's a total it's nothing of a of a role in the movie. Like he, he I wouldn't even remember he was in the movie. Whereas in the book, he's like the most important character that so many things hinge on. Um, yeah, I lost my thought. Anyway, Ella comes back to life out of the fire, and everyone's like, "Oh, whoa, she's an angel!" I guess, and she's like, "No, no, me alien," but I do speak all these languages. Right. I was gonna say Ella being able to speak. Apache is awesome. Well, it makes sense. It's like she can speak yeah. English. Why wouldn't she be able to speak whatever? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, one something yeah. that's in the book that isn't in the movie is the recognition. I want to say it's from Doc's perspective where he's like, I can see that this group of people that has kidnapped us is a hodgepodge of different Native American tribes. And... For some reason, they have banded together. And they sort of give a speech at some point about how they've banded together because even though they're different and they have different belief systems, they're all victimized by white people. And so in the face of that terror, they're they're a united front, which is, of course, you know, you can apply that to the humans versus the aliens. In the movie, none of that. 
No, none of that carries through at all, for sure. I mean, they're just rushing through it all so fast. Like, Ella comes back to life, and she's immediately like, look, Jake knows where the aliens are, and then we can all go. Like, don't kill them, because he can get us to aliens, and aliens bad, right? Right. And immediately, everyone's like, yes, good call. Jake drinks, like, they cut immediately to him, like, sipping the medicine stuff to help his memory, where the book has, like, at least two or three little intermediary scenes of, like, setting up the medical tent, going there, like, meeting the shaman or whatever, and it's like, oh, interesting. Um, Boom, skip past it. And then his flashbacks are so fast, and they're, like, five pages in the book of intricate flashback to uh, have him remember where they have to go. Right, right. In the movie, like, okay, let's all go. In the movie, it's, like, him on a table... Yeah, and there's yes. an alien. It's just like, and he wanders and one of those outside, very funny, and then it's over. Um, he wanders outside in one of those very funny shots. That's like where the camera is linked to like the movement of his face. Uh-huh. I don't know how to describe it, but it's so stupid and bad, and it's very funny to watch Daniel Craig have to do it. I don't know, made me laugh because <laughs> it was like, this is bad. Don't do this. Don't do this. This is this should be a Jason Statham it, if it, you're going to do this kind of shot. It did look. The movie does not look terrific. In not general, great. it's it's just sort of, it's I mean it's it, it, not to shit on your passions, Rachel, but in my opinion, it's it shares some flaws with the MCU as far as as far as lighting goes. Like it wasn't the most unbelievable so thing to dark. me that Favreau directed it. <laughs> I mean, it's not it as gray as modern so Marvel movies. It's not quite as dark and gloomy when it gets dark but it's it's really close it's clearly like we're getting there yes yeah. we're trending yeah definitely before we move on from the apaches when they first get kidnapped i think this is doc's perspective nat had murmured to him that the tribe would adopt the boy yeah it is doc doc had hoped as much he knew that adoption of captive children was a long tradition with the apaches growing up he had heard a lot about apaches but unlike most people, he'd actually listen to all of it, and not just to the horror stories. The Apaches had adapted to life in this land of plenty of nothing a long time ago, accepting what it gave them and paying the price it demanded, unquestioningly. Adoption must be even more vital to them now, since their numbers had been decimated in wars with both the Mexican and U.S. armies, as well as endless hostile encounters with miners and settlers. It goes on like that for a while, but really efficient use of storytelling from Joan where she's going here's a bunch of things about the culture that are relevant because the Apaches are about to be a big part of this movie and here's something about how open-minded and compassionate Doc is it's just a twofer classic yeah. Vinge twofer uh, so good <laughs> classic Vinge that whole sequence in the movie felt like, why are we here? What's going on? This feels racist. Um, and in the book, it was like she at least gave context to it and gave them arcs and like explained like half of what was going on. In except like instead of just kind of throwing us into the wolves and being like, figure it out, right? Um, it, so we can get to the next action sequence with some aliens and. Uh, like it, it, it helped because you're reading it and you're like, oh, okay, I understand these actions. And then you watch the movie is like, well, they don't know why they're here uh, or what's going on because script didn't tell them. Yeah, true. Ooh-lee. Well, I, I think that's a really great point. Like the, the you you can tell 
that the actors themselves do not have touch points in the film. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's just, it's sort of like a, a feedback loop. It's like, they don't have much to work with, they're not giving much, and it kind of makes the entire movie have no momentum. And and the yeah. novelization is unmoored from that, right? I mean, we don't have to rely on these performances. We also get to expand, essentially, the script. And so it seems like really it's it, it blossoms in a way. Nobody's doing anybody favors in the movie. Mm-mm. Writers aren't helping actors. Actors aren't helping audiences. It's just like dead in the water. Also, I gave it three and a half yeah. stars. I liked it. <laughs> Good for you. Um, <laughs> I gave it five stars, but every movie gets five stars unless I am <laughs> very upset. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've seen you rating everything five stars job. on Letterboxd, Rachel, and I, I appreciate it. I do. But, like, would that would that ex- extend to, like, films that are legitimately, like, artifacts of bigotry and stuff? So that's what is zero. <laughs> zero or a five, and that's how it's Rachel rates. It's zero or a great. five. And so, like, fans... My... Thinking is, with work, I rate movies. I have mm-hmm. to, like, dissect it. So when I'm watching movies to watch movies on my own, every movie uh, is great. I'll find something yeah. to like. But, like, um, so some of my zero stars are, like, Joker. Great. Zero. Um, great call. Zero stars. Uh, and uh, the most recent one was Fantastic Beasts, The Secrets of Dumbledore, which I saw for free. Because huh. I said, I will not give that movie money. Uh, because it would go to her How's pocket. How's the Mads of it all? she herself is a bigot. How's the Mads Mickelson of it all? Great. A completely different character. Sure. Uh, completely new, completely fresh. Uh, and he's great. And the only thing the only thing in that movie that is good is Mads and uh, Newt's hot brother, Theseus. Other than that, movie, bad. Sure. Uh, and ignores the source material completely. But Fun. like stuff like that, zero stars because uh, a bigot right. wrote it. So I was like, I'm not. <laughs> it gets no credit. My, I'm, and I like, don't know if you have your comments turned on on Letterbox or not, but my favorite type of Letterbox comment is the one where somebody comments on like a critic's review where they're obviously just they just wrote something silly because it's Letterboxed, and they comment like, yeah. "This is what passes for criticism." <laughs> <laughs> I I have mine on, and a lot of people have been like. Because my review of, like, The Power of the Dog Uh was like, wow, this would have been real topical in 2002. Mm -hmm. Because I was commenting on the amount of anthrax that is in that movie, and I was making a joke. And someone was like, this is, Jane Champion comes back from retirement, and this is what you write? (laughs) And I was like, yes. This is what I wrote. Um, Suck it, Jane. What about it? So, so for this movie, I said five stars, and I talked about the novelization, and I said, while that the novelization of the movie that is based on a novel, which I guess a graphic novel, but still same thinking, is way more in-depth than the movie I just watched. Yeah. It yeah. really is so good. So Speaking of good, can I share a passage? Oh, please, really share a passage that you think is good. So... After they team up with the Native Americans, they all go near the alien ship and are, like, setting up a little camp and making some plans. And it must be said. Sorry to to cut in. It must be said. Something I love about the the lore of the aliens is that their ship 
is like a friggin' thermometer that you stick into <laughs> Earth. It is like it dives down into Earth and it punctures the, the 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 surface of the Earth and most of it's underground, like an iceberg. I think icebergs are underground. Don't don't interrogate that. And then they are using the ship to mine gold from like as far down in the Earth as the ship will reach. They're on a business trip. Yeah. Important context for the aliens. They have their guard down a little bit. Like, you can make the complaint about the movie, how do the humans beat them so easily? They're on a business trip. They're just not thinking about it that much. And they to be, like, essentially picking up frogs and poking around at the frogs on the business trip. Yes, yes, The local absolutely. people have, are just, like, little things to play with while They're you're waiting for the business to finish. They're putting salt on the snails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're putting salt in the snails, which where the snails. But they're not, exactly. you know, like they have like passions, the aliens that are outside <laughs> of their nine to five. And they're like not, this isn't their best selves. An important <laughs> detail when you consider that they lose. I do think it's kind of awesome that they, I'm going to circle back to this passage I want to share. But the, they like put some dynamite in the top of the ship to scare, to like blow up the flyers, uh-huh. I guess. And aliens just run out of the bottom. They're just like, there's a fire. I am evacuating. Oh, no. (laughs) Which is a good response, aliens. You should evacuate when fires happen. Yes. (laughs) But it's just, they just like run out and they're like, okay, here they come. Let's kill them. Uh, Kind of amazing, fun stuff. It works. But anyway, so Jake goes and collects the remainder of his gang who join him. And there's a little scene where like Dollarhide is walking the camp. And Hunt and Bronk are, like, hanging out. And Hunt is like, huh, Dollarhide, like that Civil War general, and asks, you the same Colonel Woodrow Dollarhide who fought at Antietam? Hunt asked. Dollarhide hesitated, looking down at Hunt, feeling an unaccustomed mix of emotions rise up in him. Now was the time when his bitterness and shame had always burst out of him as fury. But he didn't even know Hunt. Hunt was only another veteran, another victim of soldier's heart who drifted west after the war like too many others who'd lost everything that held any meaning for them in blood and smoke in the endless years of killing or being killed. The man wasn't a ghost, only a stranger, a curiosity, and curiosity was the only thing that showed on his face. Yes, I am, Dollarhead said quietly, at last realizing that at last after nearly 13 years, there probably wasn't anybody left who hated him as much as he still hated himself. Hunt nodded, his curiosity satisfied, and turned back to the fire as Dollarhide walked on. That's two lines of dialogue. Yeah. With, like, a full page of, like, backstory, character development, context, and, like, emotional healing for one of our main characters (laughs) in something that in a movie would be a second. That meant nothing. I had that bookmarked as well, and... I agree that it's really good, but the reason I had it bookmarked was because I thought it was funny that somebody was like, are you Dollarhide? And then they do like a little paragraph break, like when, you know, the mid-chapter paragraph break, and then it switches perspectives, and he basically goes, yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it is, it is funny, for sure. He says and yes. And it is like really emotionally most- rich. And that he's like, no follow-up. thought. Just curious. Is yes, that you? No, that's, that's what great. really no made follow me laugh. Up. Is that he's like, cool, 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 cool. I really thought it was going <laughs> to be like, oh, I was at Antietam and I respect what you did there. But no, it's just like, ah, noted. Thank you. I'm Walton <laughs> Goggins. That's nice also to see you. why this book takes forever to read is because it is 10% dialogue, 90% <laughs> solid blocks of prose. I think <laughs> that passage too is funny just because it's like, more than the movie did 
shows Dollar Hyde like is so sad <laughs> about like everything that's happened to him in his life. And he's like, oh no, don't bring up what I've done. I'm so, and then Hunt's like, cool. Yeah, the risk of follow up <laughs> is so high that he's like, maybe I should just say no. And then he's like, and no, I'm Hunt's gonna own like, up I to don't myself. Really no consequences, care. it's all good. You're fine, man. Yeah. Hunt's like, I didn't really care. I just wanted to like, my own curiosity. I was like, hey, is you that guy? All right, cool. It, Hannah, I don't know why mm-hmm. I have this bookmark, but it's like right mm-hmm. after what you read, so I'm going to read it. Okay. Uh, maybe like a page later. Seeing Ella walk out of that fire, glowing like an angel, was as close to seeing heaven as he ever expected to get. And yet even her people had been exterminated by these demons, these monsters, these alien things. He had no words left to describe sentient beings that lived only to destroy other people's lives whose only god seemed to be gold. I guess that's like... Yeah, followed by a paragraph later, him thinking like, oh, that was me two days ago. I care yes. more about gold than my son. And actually, why not just jump to it right now? Because I was going to do it eventually. But his um, ultimate arc, Dollarhide, in the book, which it just isn't present in... Or maybe his ultimate arc is that he accepts Nat Colorado as his son, in which case it is present in the movie, but it sucks. Um, but he has this other thing where in the final chapter of the book, he realizes that he like un-Gordon Geckos. He realizes greed is bad. And he says, uh, this is 359. So right at the end, he's like, Dollarhide smiled in acknowledgement, secretly amazed at how good it made a man feel to use his money for the greater good, to begin repaying some of the debt his soul owed for wreaking so much havoc in so many lives. He couldn't even recall why the hell he'd begun hoarding all that money in the first place. It was cold and hard and dead, and he had as much of it as he'd ever need, easily five times over. Jones just like, I get that he has an arc. First of all, I'm going to make that arc better. Everything involving Nat Colorado will be better in my book. Then, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe he learns not to be a greedy asshole, because that was kind of the problem to begin with, and then the movie drops it. Yeah, yeah. It, the movie feels like it picks up, like it starts a bunch of stuff, and then's like, nah, yeah, and just like you, for, you're like, oh, I guess we're not finishing that, and then the book's like, well, I will finish yeah. it, hmm. and I'm gonna tie up every thread, and I'm gonna emotionally resolve every issue. You're welcome. Joan. Which is why this Amazing. book is almost 400 pages long. <laughs> I'm not mad though. I I'm glad. No, <laughs> I really really appreciate the work that she's doing to make these characters yeah. full and that you care about them and you want them to emerge on the other side better and happier and healthier mm-hmm. i also Very assume good. that since we're like do we, hannah you and i do a novelizations podcast and rachel you probably have a busy life like i'm assuming we all read this pretty quickly mm-hmm. and were you to actually take this in as in intended which is to like maybe read a chapter every night or two it probably would be like the perfect length it's a fully fleshed out world the only knock i have against it is that it was like a little exhausting to try to chug the book but i can't hold that against joan yeah no i mean that was it because i was like oh i have to read this for this podcast i have to hurry up and read it it made me feel like i was in high school again and i was like staying up and like i'm gonna fall asleep with this book on my face because i have to finish this um but that wasn't on her it was a good book and a good read it was it was perfect for the train yeah like reading this on the train 
great because I could sit and I was just focused on it and I was reading it and I would like finish like 20 pages and I was just like, oh shit, I read 20 pages, no problem because I didn't really have service, wasn't really doing anything other than reading the book and it worked. Yeah. So Joan... There Canonically, our book podcast later. is also an anti-cell phone podcast. Get off your phone, <laughs> kids. Yeah. Read, Read a, a book. book. Jinx. About a movie. I feel like there's, I know we're getting towards the end of the movie, but I feel like there's some choice Nat content as well. Towards the end? Yeah. I mean. Yeah, man. Nat just takes the spotlight like crazy. Um, let me Let me see what I have here for notes. Mm-hmm. 269 he's like in conflict about something uh do 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 yeah hannah do you want was that the part or rachel do you either you want to tackle the, oh. the paragraph at the top of 269 i guess you have a different edition rachel sure oh wait, let me read yeah, my go, edition go, and go, see go ahead. <laughs> okay Nat could, t- or Nat. Doc could tell from Nat's eyes that he was relieved ella had taken over the job of translating but his expression was now unhappy was as unhappy as Ella's. Nat looked deeply conflicted. Even if he was suffering in silence as he listened to this exercise in misunderstanding, the two men he held in the highest regard seemed to be from worlds as different as the aliens in the metal fortress were different from human beings. Except in this case, Nat belonged or had belonged to both uh, to both those worlds. If anyone here knew it, that it was possible for them to understand each other, if they really wanted to, it was him. Amazing. Just really good stuff. I, the only time that the we all need to work together thing tips over into bad for me is like he, Nat has that revelation. Dollar Hyde has that revelation. It's just stupid when Ella is about to suicide bomb the ship and she has the thought, Ultimately, they learned what I knew they had to learn, that they had to work together. It's like, I don't know if you need to know that. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, like, that should have belonged to Jake, but he, at the end, is like, He's busy being like, bad. I just wanted to get laid. And Ella should, should be single-mindedly about stopping the aliens. She should not be obsessed with, like, the lofty themes that entails. Yeah, in the moments where she is so driven by wanting to blow up the ship at the cost of everything else, that's when I find her most compelling. Mm -hmm. When she's this like all wise, all knowing mother figure who's like, let me, let me impart little lessons on you darling human beings. I'm not that interested in that. But when she's like, I'm going to blow the fuck out of the ship and I don't care what happens. I like that. Right. They, they lean into her having all this knowledge, but her history suggests that she would be very damaged, angry, vengeful. And mm-hmm. the the movie and even the book doesn't really touch on that. She's like oddly serene for being a lone survivor hell-bent on stopping these aliens. Yeah. Let's talk Nat's death then. Uh, uh, in, in the book, in the movie... got me a little misty-eyed. In the, in the movie, Rachel, talk about the movie. Two seconds long, I didn't understand what was going on. I was like, wait, hold on. Who died? Oh, okay. Because there's like barely a relationship there in the Mm -hmm. movie. Barely like a care. And I was just like, oh, well, that sucks that that guy died when uh, the whole white cast survives. (laughs) Um, Like, I don't know why that guy had to die. 
Um, and then in the book, it's like, it still sucks because it's like, you could have, I don't know, kept Percy alive and killed Percy and made that more like, I had two sons and one died. Um, but it's, at least you knew Nat and you knew his journey a little bit more. It still is not like, it, it, it sucks. But in the movie, you're just like, oh, all right. That guy who I guess is their translator only uh, died. But now we have Ella who can translate for us, so it's fine. Uh, but yeah, it, it's in the movie just doesn't really work at all. It's also like poorly staged and framed. I think in the movie, where like in like Dollarhide basically like like holds Nat in his arms as he dies, and they like ho- hold each other, and it's very moving. And the way what you're seeing in the movie is like Harrison Ford's face cut to Adam Beach's face back and forth, and you don't get like the full scene which is what would make it powerful is like here's someone who in the movie you're like i guess he just worked for him yeah but the and then suddenly i like i understand there could be a compelling version where you're like i don't get what their relationship is and then in the moment of nat's death you're like oh their relationship was like meaningful it was like it, yeah it, there's yeah, this you don't reveal get that between the way that it's shot there's this reveal that they are essentially the godfather and tom hagen and you're like, I wasn't getting that. Okay, <laughs> we're doing a real son versus adopted son thing? Okay. <laughs> yeah, very late in the movie, which we have gotten earlier in the book due to interiority and good narration. Very late in the movie, like, Nat is talking to Black Knife and Ella is translating secretly to Jake. Like, he's saying that Dollarhide adopted him when he didn't have a family. <laughs> and it just feels like... It's so expository, um, and it's very, like, it's just not good. It's badly delivered, and it's just like, here's some story context you're going to need in 10 minutes when this character dies. Yeah. It's yeah. not good. I want, I want a version of this movie where Ella is more like Daryl Hannah in Splash, where she's just, like, having a ball being a human, <laughs> and it's like... Like translates that scene more like Hannah just did, where she's like, "So, like, so you know, uh, here's what he's saying." Does it just is this to Daniel weird Craig. in your culture, or is that normal? <laughs> like, is it is weird that, that I'm telling you what's going on? Um, yeah, but I want that version because, like, this movie, <laughs> I'm just I didn't care about her. I'm sorry. Like, I was like, I yeah. In the book, it makes more sense, but in the movie, I was like, I don't care about this character who Daniel Craig, I guess, is now kissing. Um, I don't care. I guess that's my commentary on the whole movie. Yeah, it's hard I to didn't care, care about, about these people. Anything except for you know what? Maybe I I still only cared about Doc, who was like, "I'm just trying to get my wife back, man. I'll come with you guys," but I don't know. He also like disappears in and out of the movie too. Like the movie loses focus yeah. on Doc pretty often, and then he'll pop back up for like a quip or to shoot a rifle. And you're like, "Oh yeah, him. He's still around. Great." Um, in a way that yeah, like, like the book is much better about keeping all of the characters integrated <laughs> in the action all the well, way through. In this whole section, they are all not invited into the conversation. And it is clear that they're not invited into the conversation because they're like, the only people who can be here are uh, the people in charge, which is Dollarhide um, and Black Knife, and then uh, Jake, because Jake has answers. And this, and this, uh, the white painted woman, the person who was sent by the white person, uh, painted woman, which was Ella, which, uh, movie doesn't 
bring up that. They're just like, oh, this woman sur- uh, rose from the fire. We got to keep her yeah. around. She uh, rose from the fire. No the denying book. that. That's good. Whoa. I definitely don't Whoa. think that's a witch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in the book, it's like established, like, oh, here is why they trust her. But in the movie, they're like, nah, don't worry about it. <laughs> it's fine. She can just be here. But, like, yeah, it's weird to watch the movie after having everything established in the book as in this particular section um, and why these things are happening in in a movie. It's like, I don't know. (laughs) They're happening. Hannah, the top of 312, would you read read Nat's death to me? Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, my gosh. I just, I know we're reading a million passages this episode, but this book is so good. Yeah, poor Nat. Dollarhide felt like his heart was being pulled out through his eyes. A thousand things it was too late to say crowded each other for space in his mind. He managed a weak smile. Yeah, he said, we got one. Looking up again, he shouted, Doc! How bad is it? Nat whispered. His eyes were glazing over with shock. You're going to be all right. Dollarhide laid a hand on Nat's forehead, stroking his hair the way he had long ago, when Nat was still a grieving boy whose nightmares woke them both. I'm here with you. His voice barely held out for long enough to speak the words. He tried to control his expression, the only thing left in the universe that he had any control over, to keep it calm and reassuring while Nat's lifeblood ran out through his fingers. Nat looked up at him, and for a moment his eyes cleared as memory shone through. I always dreamed of riding into battle with you. Dollarhide broke the knot of grief that kept him from words, finally able to say, only now, the one thing that he'd needed to say since forever. I always dreamed of having a son like you. Do you want more than that? No, let's talk about novelizing movies, okay? (laughs) Here's the thing about it, is that oftentimes, the thing we reward as a novelizations podcast is invention or Mm -hmm. embellishment. We reward like, oh, they put in this little scene that gave further context to an existing scene. How clever. Joan Vinge is excelling in a way that I feel like we, we often don't consider, which is she is putting so much between the lines without altering them. Because that scene in the movie is Nat going, I always wanted to go into battle with you. Well, I wish you were my son. And it's like, (laughs) in the book, the same lines are there, but she puts so much in between them, she imbues them with so much meaning without changing the actual text, and it works like gangbusters. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. I, I like, missed it up reading that in the book, and then I watched the movie, and I was like, that was that moment was dumb. That was really dumb. Yeah. <laughs> it's unearned, completely unearned. I mean, reading it just now, I got a little choked up. It's very... She takes you on that emotional journey that you feel it, too. Yeah. These people who, like, have love for each other but haven't really been able to express it in the way they need to, and they can't until it's too late. Like, that's very poignant. And they do uh, reiterate that his son is an idiot because yeah. he says, I wish I had a son like you. And it's like, Nat rocks, you do have sex. a son. Yeah. So, like, <laughs> I mean, Nat's last words are like, go get Percy. And Dollarhead has to be like, oh, Percy, right. <laughs> I kid. It's not thinking hey, about good, Percy. Good news for Dollarhide, though. Like for some people, the memory wipe of abduction works as a as a personality reset. So, oh, it's good. It's good for Percy to not remember that he was the worst piece of shit in town. 
Yeah, I was watching and this movie. I was movie. like, I'm a good boy. I was watching this movie with a friend, and I was like, after Percy came back, I was like, should we go abduct a child from a playground? Because it seems beneficial to people. <laughs> we, cho- oh we, we chose not to. Good, 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 good. That's, yeah, I think that's the right call. You Obviously, we would have taken a brat. Do that. Because you want to have, like, maximum most improved player type of thing. You but know? you also have to run them through an yeah. alien light machine that wipes their memories. Don't forget that part. That's important. I have a process. lava lamp. That's pretty close. Yeah, I think it would work out. It's not just the kidnapping. Just scan though, it know. over them. Like, plug it in and just go. Boop, 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 boop. Yeah, exactly. I have it one... is. Sorry, go. <laughs> No, I was going to say the visual in the movie when they find all the abducted people and they're, like, like hooked up is very, very creepy. Oh, yeah. Like, the way it is described in the book, I was picturing, like, okay, they're all just kind of, like, stood up like mannequins. Right. That's what but in the movie, oh, I... it's, like, almost like they're on, like, meat hooks, it feels like. And it's really, really spooky and horrifying. And I was like, okay, points to movie. Single points to movie. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is It is really creepy and it's in and, and the... The light that's above them that is, like, hypnotizing them. When Ella shoots it, which, first off, very funny thing in the book and movie, is when she's like, the light is the thing hypnotizing them, Daniel Craig. Don't look up. And he goes and looks at, like, four of their faces and sees them looking up. And he goes, I wonder what's up there. (laughs) And then he looks. (laughs) And she shoots the light to, like, free him and them. Something I didn't pick up on reading the book in the movie it's like this gelatinous mess falls upon everyone below. Some seriously <laughs> yeah. gross stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also feel like the tension, like in the movie, people start to wake up and come back to themselves relatively quickly. Quickly, The tension in the book of like, well, they're not moving. They're not waking up. Like, it's really hard to get them, like, even ambulatory to like walk themselves out, no matter if they remember who they are or not. Um I was so concerned. I was like, oh, God, have they done all this for nothing? Are these right. people, like, totally lost? Right. Are they totally just fried? Yeah. I have one question about the 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 climax, like, their plan to stop the aliens. Because, ultimately, they, they dynamite the aliens, and then they fight them on foot. And then Ella goes in and, and reprograms the, the alien gun so that it'll self-destruct. And she basically suicide bombs it as it's taking off. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. What was the role of Black Knife, the Apache chief, in the final attack? What was the intended role? I think that they're all, they're just additional troops, basically. And Black Knife is like, I'm keeping my guys up on the ridge, and we'll basically do cover fire. Uh-huh. And you guys do the on-the-ground fighting. And then upon realizing, like, oh, we all love our children the Native Americans join the fight on the ground. Because he sees Nat Colorado die. But Yeah, and sees Dollarhide's grief and is like, oh, that's nice. I guess that works as an arc. <laughs> I thought since Dollarhide was like, they should come down from there, they're not helping. And Black Knife thought, oh, we're not really helping, should we come down? And then decided against it. I thought there was going to be this moment of like, Actually, the Apache way of combat is is weirdly prescient. You just need patience or something. I thought that from the from up high they were going to save the day. So it was weird to me then when Black Knight was like, "You know what? We should probably go down and fight." I think his his hesitance to going down is more. I don't care what happens to those white people. 
I'm not putting my people in danger just because you think it's smarter to fight on the ground. Right. And then he's like, oh, they're good people. They need our help. Okay, we'll actually go help them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that does make sense. Which, you know what? I appreciate it because it's like the show in the in uh, Mine and Hannah's Beloved Gay Pirates show <laughs> when they get captured and uh, Steed is like, no, we're the good white people. And he's like, yeah, we've heard that before. No it's like, people. I like, the, the, like to me, that's this energy of like, mm, I don't trust you. All right, I guess I can trust you like now. Nah. You specifically <laughs> like, I see that okay, you're okay, but I think coming yeah. at me from a perspective of, but I'm good, not going to work. I need evidence yeah. that you, and this is not going to extend to other white people in the future. Just you. It's you. <laughs> that's it. And it's that same energy of like, all right, I think we can fight now. Yeah. <laughs> like they have proven themselves enough. For this one instance, yeah. I do really. And we will help them. I do really like that. Then they like pair off, and it's like one cowboy, one Indian fighting one alien. Like like that bit. Um, like when Walton Goggins and his friend are like get pinned down, and that big guy like blows himself up <laughs> to save them. <laughs> oh, that's accident. amazing! For that for rocks. people who haven't seen the movie, a guy puts a dynamite on a knife, then runs up and stabs an alien. The alien turns to him as if to be like. That is a small knife, and I'm a giant alien. What are you thinking? And then they just explode. Pretty fun and cool. Pretty fun and cool. Um, yeah. In the end, the cowboys win. The aliens die. Everybody's happy. Because when the alien ship blows up, it spews gold everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everybody who was Which- there becomes wealthy and successful. <laughs> they just like scoop the up a bunch of gold. It's described in the book. I thought that the aliens were taking the gold because it was it helped keep them alive. Because when he's fighting Red Scar, he's like, oh, I saw this, like, pool of liquid gold. And I was like, oh, is it, like, how they, like, did they need the gold? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And then he uh, pushes Red Scar into the molten gold, and he bursts into flames and dies. That is a cool, a cool death. That he pu- pushes <laughs> yeah, an alien into, a, into a, like, a waterfall of molten gold. Yeah, it's like the opposite of, uh, I was trying to think, there's like, I, I can see the movie when someone is like pushed into gold and like becomes gold, but I cannot think of what it is. But uh, it's like that. But in my mind, when I was reading, I was like, oh, what like, what do they need? Like, do they need the gold? To-? And then he dies from it. And I was like, oh, I'm just kidding. That's just pretty cool. kidding. Um, and also like <laughs> in that last sequence, like Dollar Hyde realizes that Jake and Ella haven't escaped the ship yet and he goes in to save them. Which is a nice growth between, like, I hope that this outlaw dies a horrible yes. death for thieving me. And then it's like, I have to make sure he lives. He is a, I like a nephew. Kind of like a nephew to me. Not a they're son, boys. but, like, I like <laughs> him. Just like, they're boys I now. like everything involving the gold, as I said earlier in the episode. I think it's a really cool concept and, and just a <laughs> motivation for alien invasion that I'm not used to. I do just wish that the VFX for everything involving the gold were better. When the when the gold disintegrates in his flashback to to Jake and and Alice being abducted, it looks so shitty. And the 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 river and the waterfall of molten gold aren't like themselves scary. It's just when Red Scar gets pushed into it, you're like, oh, I guess that would kill him. Not like, oh, that's gross, you know. <laughs> True. So true. I mean, what do we think about the design of these aliens? Not book related. The book barely describes them. But like, yeah. There's bad, little right? hands. Bad. They go like, they come out the body and the hands. When no. the little hands touch Emmett's face, I was like, oh, God, so I've gross. never seen anything more disgusting. It is like if you took 
alien and predator and put them together and then on top of that put like and i'm junies from snl <laughs> all into like one design yeah. that is what these aliens were to i was me. like they're a little and bit I grasshoppers they're a little bit frogs they're a little bit the aliens from district nine they're like alien and predator as you say but they're like both not scary and just disgusting and gooey like their little chest cavity opens and they have the little wet hands and i'm like your heart is exposed that's bad evolutionary design (laughs) ew but also like a t-rex because those hands looked tiny like if they had to lean forward in order to like touch anything (laughs) so it was like is it it's the meet the robinsons where he's like i got a big head and little arms yeah it (laughs) It, it feels like an unbold choice on the part of the aliens, just to, like the, their design, just to have them be like big and insect-like and grayish. It's it's a lot of like uninteresting choices that I feel like we see in a lot of alien movies. I'm specifically thinking that even though they walk differently, their skin and their aesthetic is not that different from the battleship aliens. Mm-hmm. It's the same sort of like gross, slimy, yeah. gray dudes type of type yeah. of thing. I mean, you got to walk a line, and I understand that this is hard. Of like, they need to be scary and big and intimidating and inhuman. Like they, but also you have to believe that they're smart enough to do the kind of technology and mining and investigation that they're doing. Like that seems hard to design. Yeah, but I don't like where they landed. <laughs> No, no, absolutely. It feels like kind of a compromise. It'll be interesting when we do a crumb on the um, graphic novel to see what how they're yeah. portrayed. And they're also, really curious. by the way, is a uh, direct-to-internet uh, graphic novel sequel. <gasps> Ooh. Interesting. Ooh, boy. Because I don't really understand how you sequelize Well, I wish, like- I wish there were more books, I, 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 because or movies or whatever, uh, because I think that this does a... Engages in a type of sci-fi storytelling that's awesome, which is that it has a problem, but the problem feels like a specific instance. Like, it feels like there's bigger worlds that we're not exploring. Where do these aliens come from? Why do they need gold? Also, maybe we go to Ella's planet. There's all this stuff that's just peppered in about the reality of this world. I would not read a sequel about Ella's planet. But no, I'm not saying just... Or the aliens. I, right, okay. I'm not saying... I mean, that's the problem. It's like, I don't understand how you sequelize, because I want to follow the cowboys. Right. But a sequel to the cowboys is just like a Western. Like there's, there's You don't want additional aliens to show up. I, I wouldn't believe that. I think, I think you find a way to bring the sci-fi that you've introduced back to Earth. So... Mm-hmm. You know, you make a sequel that's basically like uh, suddenly all of these peaceful aliens start flooding into the, the Old West. And you're like, why the heck are these aliens who don't want anything from us here? And then once you can translate what they're saying, it turns out because they know that these, you know, evil aliens from movie one are coming for them and they want Earth's protection. That sort of thing. Like you can you can make it work. Well, I'm curious about the uh, direct to internet graphic novel sequel sequel i will say um and i wish i would have thought about this earlier when we were talking about this movie but what i realized at the end of this podcast is that this movie western parts feel like when you would go and take those old western pictures (laughs) and you would have half of the costume because it was just like you just have to look like the part Mm -hmm. 
for the picture, that's what this whole movie felt like on the Western yeah. front. Like, you're half a Western. Because I used to hate them because I was like, no, no, no. I want to fully feel like I am in a Western. And you would your back would be like your tank top or like you would still have like your shorts on or whatever it was. Um, and that's the whole movie. Yeah. I mean, by the time that Ella puts on trousers and a shirt, I'm like, this is too modern. Come on. Yeah. I mean, again, he, (laughs) the front of my book. I mean, the styling for everybody is like modern movie making. We're having fun on a back lot. And I respect that. It felt, it felt like the back lot. And it didn't feel like you were in any place. I mean, I would watch cow. I watched Cowboys and Aliens. I would watch English Cavaliers and Aliens. Yes. I would watch like Chinese foot soldiers in the Ming Dynasty and Aliens. Like, I think the concept of alien sci-fi in the Earth past is really fun, which is why like the setup at the end of Predator Two, where they're like 1740, yes. and you're like, I want to see that. I want to see. But you know, that. the new Predator movie is doing something like that. Oh really? It's I've kind of it, given up on predators. I'm not gonna lie. There's this the like the one still we have from the new Predator movie is Amber Mid Thunder playing what what appears to be like a Native American woman fighting a predator. Oh, like in the okay. woods. See, Sounds great. Okay. I what well, I'm into here's that. My hot take on this series of Cowboys and Aliens. You got to give it to Seth Graham Smith and let him do it. Because he really knows how to mix a genre. Yeah, I was like, I know Hannah and I are both fans of Abraham Lincoln Vampire. <laughs> a really good book. Um, a really good I love book. Pride and I love Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. I think if he did something like this, and it would have Hannah's wish, like we would be in every single world, like the Roman Empire versus aliens. Like yeah. it would, all of those things would happen. I think it'd be fun. Like you would figure out that Australia actually was like they sent uh british prisoners there to fight the aliens and that's why australia is australia um (laughs) that leads directly into mad max australia (laughs) yes but i just think like this this book did a better job of marrying the two genres the movie did not and i wish that this had come out first and maybe they got some ideas (laughs) and we're like Hey, what if we incorporated any of this into the movie? Hannah Blackman. Yes. You are on a business trip. (laughs) Oh, no. Your mission, just a weekend away, is to get gold from the planet Earth using one of your knife ships that punctures planets. Right, as I do every week. The fact that they have me work on the weekend, I don't love. Yeah, well, see, here's the issue. You get there, and there's a lot of fucking gold. So (laughs) they tell you that you have to stay for the entire week. Your children are not happy to hear this. (laughs) When you video call with them, they wave their creepy little face hands in a way that very much shows that they are upset, and they miss you terribly. You decide to send them a souvenir from planet Earth to try to tide them over until they have your love in person again. Would you send them Cowboys and Aliens by Joan D. Vinge and um, based on the screenplay by Robert Orsai and Alex Kurtman and Damon Lindelof and Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby uh, with a screen story by Mark Fergus and Hawk Osby and Steve Odekirk? Uh, yes, I would. <laughs> I think this book is great. I would recommend it to anyone. Like, if you like 
this type of paperback of like a little fast, like basically an airport read. Like if you want to read a kind of fun adventure novel, uh-huh. I would recommend Cowboys and Aliens. I think it's really strong. It was a really a good read. Um, I would then say like you don't have to watch the movie, but the book really stands on its own and is really strong. And so I would really recommend it all around town. So even to my freaky little bug children, <laughs> who I think would find it very upsetting. Actually, the hand- I wish their hands did the like. Pan's Labyrinth thing. <laughs> I don't know if they could read it. Like their head eyes. I won't dwell on this, but the part where Emmett's being attacked by the thing was like grotesquely, not to suggest that they are grotesque, but it was both grotesque and very vaginal, right? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and he, yeah, seeing sure. him then yeah. stab it directly like upset me on a level I wasn't ready for. It's pretty upsetting. I mean, it's also weird because it feels like the... We, we get hints that the aliens have taken children before, mm-hmm. but, like, whenever the aliens encounter Emmett, they're like, what is this <laughs> tiny man? And they, like, poke at him a lot more than they would at anybody else. And it's so predatory and disgusting, and, like, their hands are wet, and it's just like, stop. Stop touching him. Stop touching him. Yeah. That's a child. I don't... Rachel Leishman. Yes. You are gambling on a riverboat in the New Orleans River. Great. Sounds like me. There is a a bright flash of light outside. You see people in their kayaks and water skiing just getting pulled up into the sky by, by black lassos. You know that because the riverboat is quite far from land that you have no hope of getting back. In your final moments, you can pull from the Riverboat Casino's library of books to possibly get like a chapter or two into something new. Would you choose Cowboys and Aliens by Joan D. Vinge based on the work of many people? Uh, yes, I would. Um, only after realizing that death on the Nile wasn't there, because that would be more apt for my (laughs) predicament that I was in. Uh, But yes, then I would be like, well, next best option, Cowboys and Aliens by Joan DeVinge, based on the movie, based on the graphic. Absolutely. Uh, (laughs) For my final moments on this planet. I hope that the Casino Boat Library has only... Cowboys and Aliens. 20 copies. And, like two other books that are have feature riverboats. It's like, yeah. what's um, it's, it's Mark Twain's Finn, book about? Like, Huck Finn. Yeah. It's just Huck, Huck Finn and Cowboys Finn and Aliens, and that's it. Andrew Overby. Hello. You are part of an old Westie outlaw gang. Uh-huh. And you like to rob from trains and stagecoaches and occasionally mining camps. And one day your boss is like, I'm out of here. I'm leaving. Bye. And you're like bummed about it because he was your favorite boss. Mm -hmm. And then later your boss shows back up and he's like, I don't remember you. And you're like, whoa, but I think you're my favorite. So I thought we had something special. And he's like, I'm sorry. I'm not familiar with that. To get him reacquainted with himself, his relationship to you and his general place in the world. Would you recommend to him Cowboys and Aliens by Joan D. Vinge? First of all, thank you for making me the Walton Goggins character. You're welcome. I do really appreciate that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I am so effusive about this book. Let's have this conversation right now, Hannah. Is it the best one we've ever read? 
Oh, it's like top two, probably. That's yeah. really my question, though. Does it dethrone the king? No. You don't not, think so? I mean, I haven't... I ha- mm, No, I don't think it does. Okay. I think because my relationship to Star Wars Revenge of the Sith is different, mm-hmm. that book really hits for me and is so strong. This is like... It's so close, though. Like, if I liked Star Wars less, I think maybe I'd be like, this is the best novelization we've ever read. But it's really, really close. It's definitely top five. It's, I think, top two. I, I think it's number one for me. And nice. It, it, the, nice. Uh, partially, I have to admit that I'm not just judging it based on content. I'm judging it based on craft. I think that mm-hmm. Joan exercised a level of creativity with this movie that wasn't necessary with Revenge of the Sith because she's just whole cloth being like, what if there were good things in here, though? True. That's a fair point. Yeah. Fair. She had a blank slate. Yeah, she had a pretty mm-hmm. blank slate. And yeah, and I, I think that the that like basically every single page of this book has something magnificent on it. Be it like a single line or just an entire page descriptor of action. Hey, let's say that. We haven't said this yet. Action is so hard to write in these novelizations. Yeah. She's got it. She does a great job. It's clear. It's exciting. You know who's involved. You know the danger they're in. Um, she, it's good. She also really doesn't... Really impressive. Uh, she's not afraid to really take a dive into interiority in the midst of action. She. Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, like, how much did she storyboard this? I would love to know. Because it just seems... It must have been a nightmare to be like, okay... And here at this point, that seems to be unrelated to Nat Colorado. I really need to give him a moment so that later this other thing pays off. I think this is like an, a, a complex tapestry, expertly woven. So this is a, this is this is a definitely give to my old boss Jake Lonergan to help him understand who he <laughs> himself is type of situation. I think reading this book would make him like a more emotionally available person, you know, like it would help him understand that sharing your feelings is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, like I just think this book is has good lessons subtly presented on the whole. Absolutely. It gets a little heavy towards the end, but like, I don't mind if occasionally you're going to put a period on a sentence. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I oh, oh maybe my only complaint about the book is I do like when books have different length chapters. It was kind of a bummer that all of these were like twenty five pages. Mm, that's not something I take note of. But cool, I hear you. Cool, cool, cool. Oh, I do because I love I love a one page chapter. <laughs> I'm just like hell well, yeah. Next there's chapter. There's a certain suspense where you're like I just don't know how long this is going to be. Like this thing that they're in, are they going to get out of it? I don't know. Anywho, love this book. Number one <laughs> with an alien bullet. <laughs> Rachel Leishman. Thank you for joining us. Let's say that myself and the podcast listeners are skeptical about enjoying the work that you put out. (laughs) What is it and why should we? And what do you do? Oh, well, uh, I'm a nerd. I love a lot of things. And so uh, I put my love of all things nerdy into the things that I'm writing Normally, I try and reference the movie Face Off quite often. Coming later this season, unauthorized. Oh, Face Off, one of the bests. Um, uh, I try and just have fun with my work and my writing. And it's very fun because I talk about 
my superheroes and my Star Wars and my tracks every once in a while. So you, you primarily cover uh, movies and television? For the most part, I do a little bit of pop culture just in general. And then um, if Ben Shapiro does something dumb, <laughs> I love to make fun of him. Have uh, you considered incorporating book to screen to book to, in your I, writing? I do that on occasion. <laughs> like if a movie has, uh, if a movie coming out has a book, I tend to read that book and then write up a piece saying like, well, here's what happens in the book and then comparing it after the fact. I did it with The Devil All the Time, which is a wild book and movie. What if bad things kept happening forever? The Devil All the Time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of that movie, but it is interesting. Yeah, I was a big fan of whatever Robert Pattinson was choosing. <laughs> always. Um, okay. <laughs> but Shout yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> I'm going to keep saying it until I manifest it. I, would, I mean, I would love it. Yeah, I can't. I can't. Yeah, I would love it. Uh, Rachel, the Padro Pascal, your, am I getting yes. this correct? Podcast about Pedro Pascal that chronologically tackles his work not chronologically kind of just pick we pick and choose like i have tried to get us to do multiple episodes on triple frontier a movie i am hannah and i watched together (laughs) and truly broke us as people because there's a line where he says this is my fuck you money not pedro pascal um oh, oh my god why garrett Hedlund? every single actor in that movie gets one like unbelievably perfect line uh, it rocks. I think Pedro's is like, if we get to that beach and he's not there, I'm fucking killing people. Which yeah, I think I'm about fucking all the time. killing people is his. And also, um, what the fuck are we shooting at? Where he like busts up into a room. He's like, what the fuck are we shooting at? It's a great movie about idiots. I try and do that movie multiple times. If we're like, we don't know what to cover. I'm like, what if we cover Triple Frontier? <laughs> um, we haven't done... The Great Wall, which I think Hannah wants to do, so we have to figure out our schedule. I just right want to make now, it clear so many... that when The Great Wall came out, everyone was like, this movie is a crime, and it shouldn't exist, etc., whatever. I paid money to see it in a movie theater <laughs> for my guy, Pedro Pascal, who was my guy first. Just want to make that clear. I paid money you to did support know him. him. Hannah knew him first because Hannah saw before him before he was on Game of Thrones. Show. <laughs> before he was, I anybody. knew him from Game of Thrones. I was like, that guy rocks. I famously fell in love with him on Game of Thrones. Said, "Oh my God, who's this guy? I'm gonna love that character because my favorite character had just died." And all of my friends who read the book said, "I wouldn't do that if I were you." And I was like, "I hate this show." My whole experience with Game of Thrones is like I watched one season and then I talked to someone. I was like, "Oh, here's the characters I like." Blah 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 blah. And they're like, "All of them die." And I was like, "I'm not continuing yeah. this show. I'm not doing that to myself." Rachel, will anyway. uh, have you covered or will you cover the uh, unbearable weight of massive talent? I covered it. I gave it a five out of five as an actual review because that movie is it was I, it was a lot of fun um, I, I i liked it very much it, i look forward to seeing tr- it someday truly hannah i would go to a theater because i have never in my life experienced a movie theater like that where nick cage was not in the theater and yet in my press screening which i think was mixed between press and like fans who got to come early had people cheering as if nicholas cage himself was listening to yeah, us. Yeah, people were going nuts movie. at mine too. Like, wow. Absolutely wild. Like, 
he just he at one point says his name and they scream. I mean, I can't wait. I really am excited. The movie theater experience in Santa Fe is like so low key. It's almost a bummer. Like people just don't seem that into right. anything. <laughs> like it's. What have you changed it? What have you yourself? I mean, when I went to see Ambulance, <laughs> I hooted, hollered, and, <laughs> and unfortunately, no one else was in the theater with me. <laughs> but I, I envy that situation. It some hooting very and hollering, much. and I did it. It, I mean, I spent most of the movie going like, Jacob, Jacob, honey, yes, Jacob. <laughs> uh, so, Tori said, uh, it won a lot of Grammys, a sentence yeah. that is, refuses to leave my head. A masterpiece. About Braveheart. What a film. Okay, a so. Should be novelized. <laughs> uh, so many movies these days, it's like I walk out of them and I'm like, I wish. I wish I could just I go pick love. that up off a shelf. Someday, I hope that we encounter something that is novelized. The novel comes out before the movie, and we have like the genuine, fresh experience yes. of like reading the book first and then seeing the movie in a way that like has maybe never happened to anyone since 1994. Right. That would be. That's not going to happen. That'd be cool. <laughs> no. no, it's not. All right. So, listeners, check out Rachel's work at the Mary Sue and also uh, Padro Pascal. As usual. I'm begging you to rate us, review us, and subscribe to us. We need it. Uh, I'm getting more desperate, which I think is fun. Um, (laughs) Okay, as per usual, I'm going to close out the episode with a passage from a famous piece of literature and see if you can pick out what this is from. All right. The drawbridge alarm sounded. Henry looked up from his morning wordle, confused. Casey, what's happening? There's ships approaching, but the drawbridge isn't going up. Henry's jaw clenched. Not again. It was going to be her again, and it was going to because of it was going to be because of that book. Again. Casey, who's manning the drawbridge today? Whomever it was was erring terribly. Casey checked the time long. Jane Kislowski. God damn it. Henry saw red. Every time there was a problem, it was Jane erring, not succeeding, because she was reading <laughs> that stupid book. He donned his coat and headed upstairs to the lookout. Sure enough, there she was, reading that brick of a novel, not seeing the three boats headed, heading straight for the bridge. In the business, it was called a fatal error. Henry was beginning to think it should be called a Jane's error. Jane, he thundered. Jane jumped. I'm sorry, sir, she blubbered. This is some of the most beautiful writing I've ever seen. To think it's a novelization based on a film everyone has already forgotten about. That film itself based on a graphic novel. The places from which beauty spring are unpredictable and magical. Jane, you're fired. And burn (laughs) that copy of Cowboys and Aliens. It's a danger to anyone operating machinery. Henry turned away from Jane's tears and trudged back downstairs. It's done, he said to Casey. She's fired. Casey was shocked. Don't you think that's a bit extreme? No, Henry said. I could no longer watch Jane Eyre. Good night. I think the further away you get from the actual premise of the thing you're, like, making a joke about, the it's harder. I'm not sure it's better. (laughs) 